Emergency medicine abstract with Sanjay and Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to EMA, the December episode. The holiday episode. You know, it's 175 degrees outside, and I feel like Christmas. <laughs> you know what I, what I miss, actually, about childhood? Everything? Is that, well, yeah, a lot <laughs> the of The lack of responsibility, the not caring what anybody thought about anything. No, is that, you know, when we and, you know, Mike and I spend a lot of time on this show reminiscing about the good old days in the 80s when right. we grew up. everything. All the shows had the Christmas episode. Oh, but I hated the Christmas episodes. Oh, I liked the Christmas episodes. Oh, I hate them. And, you know, in sing- I, it was a non sequitur. Yeah. kind of didn't fit in with the rest yeah. of the, the plot line or whatever. But it was like the feel good. Right? Yeah, but there was always some goofy thing about how, is Santa really real? The jingling on the rooftop at the well, very end. Yeah. Hated it. Oh, and, I... and, I'm just let me finish this part and then I'll let you go to yours. They always, they, that's like the worst episode to see in syndication. Yeah, well, it doesn't make sense. When you see it in syndication, it's like 2.30 in the morning, can't sleep because you're post night, you're, you know, you're after a swing shift, or you're having a beer trying to decompress, flip on, you know, one of these weird cable channels. It's June 12th, and you see the Christmas episode of Family Matters. It just doesn't but, work. First of all, I'm just going to take the, the pro of this <laughs> argument and say, okay. I like, but I also, I really like the holidays. You know, I, right. my, that's just that my mom was like very into the holidays and decorated a lot and made it a big deal. I guess it always felt like a really nice time of year for me. What I was going to say was, very recently, a show brought it back. Oh, was it Ted Lasso? Ted yeah. Lasso. Ted Lasso did a non-sequitur. And how great was that Christmas episode? Yeah, but that's because, okay, you talk about one of the great shows like of all time, and they've done one Christmas. They didn't do now, one I'm actually season. not sh- sure which show you're referring to, Ted Lasso or Family Matters, because you <laughs> talked about both. <laughs> Family Matters was also one of the great shows of all time. I'm just saying, you put Steve Urkel up there did I, you with know- just about any other- Okay. You know this this little factoid about me, but that when I moved into my apartment in Culver City, the previous owner was Steve Urkel. I don't know if I knew that. Do you not know that? It's what? right down the street from the Sony Studios. Didn't he go to UCLA? He did, but that was like later. You know, he yeah. Yes, no, I, I guess he was there at UCLA. That's what I was the, thinking. In, Perry that yeah. time, but he so my home was Steve Urkel's home, and I will tell you, he lived modestly because <laughs> well, I was, bought that house as a. Second year resident, you know, second year. You know what? That's a rare factoid I don't think I knew about. Yeah. In fact, you came over to that house a bunch of times. Yeah. If you ever notice in the front, like a lot, this was a problem for a long time. Like the way you buzzed in and stuff, like my apartment number didn't, or it was a, like a condo townhouse kind of thing. It didn't have the right number, and it was like sort of weirdly out of order, and you couldn't actually fix it. And that it. was intentional. It was intentional. Because to protect? To protect Steve Urkel. That from is the, From the true. throngs <laughs> of Steve Urkel fans. Yeah. I know. No, it's right down the street from those Sony yeah. studios. I mean, literally like no, a couple hundred it. yards away from that, and that's why he didn't and, and that. right And right behind Natalie Todd. Yeah, now, well, of course. Uh, but, which is, a, of, of course, why Steve Urkel lived there. If so you, <laughs> anyone who has you know lived in that sort of west side of LA, the UCLA student yeah. housing, Natalie knows your, about Natalie Todd. Yeah. You know, speaking of other LA references that I'm just thoroughly enjoying right now, of course- and amazing shows, one of which should definitely have a uh, Christmas episode 
Cobra Kai. Okay. Oh, How yeah. awesome would a Cobra Kai Christmas episode be? That would be hysterical with Johnny doing his stuff. But because <laughs> you'd imagine Johnny's apartment with like a like a metal festivus style tree Absolutely. and like the LaRussos. But, but him trying all, to get into it, yeah. like trying to be like in the Christmas spirit, but having literally no idea how to do it. That would be hilarious. But I was watching this season's Cobra Kai, which is epic. And it just they make all these references to the valley. Yeah. And it's just so hysterical. They're like, he's trying to take over the whole valley. Yeah. <laughs> He'll get the valley. He's not going to stop there. As if the valley is this amazing place that requires, like, you know, the, the, the evil Bond villain would be, like, focused on the valley. They're like, he's opened up a new studio in Toluca Lake. They literally did that. And it's just, like, it's so funny. And it must be just absolutely hilarious to be writing it, knowing that it's so ridiculous. He's taking over Toluca Lake. But if you live in Toluca Lake, you're like, don't you take over my Toluca Lake. They, you get it, but a very small segment of the viewership is going to understand. And if you don't live in LA and you're like, what's Toluca Lake? You're like, nobody cares about Toluca Lake. What's great is you'll still think it's funny. I know. That's what the show does so that, well. That, but I'm all on board. You want a Christmas episode of Christmas, Cobra Kai? We got we to gotta suggest that one. A Cobra Kai Christmas, right? You picture like- Whoa, the little, you just the, blew my mind. You picture yeah. the little cobra with like a little Santa Ooh, hat on. And the, and you're wearing your eagle fang shirt. I, I am actually wearing my eagle fang <laughs> karate shirt. Look at it. Yeah, we, Imagine. It's already He's got red. like an elf thing going <laughs> on. <laughs> Oh man, this is gold, Jerry. This it's is gold. This is this is good. So, you no, know, you know, the, another thing is that somebody wrote in this month and they're like, "Hey, I love your introduction. I know some people think it's wordy and stuff like that, but I like it. Gets people warm." And the truth is, if you don't like it, honestly, just skip it. That's fine. I don't yeah. care. We have to do it because we got to, you know, sort of loosen up and lather up for this uh, for our for our EMAs. Yeah, because Mike and I, you know, it takes us about three hours to tape this thing. <laughs> so if we're not like. Kind of like got the yeah. got the wiggles out a little bit, like well, you know, it could be a pretty bland, but taping, frankly, and nobody wants that, right? So there's that element of it. But people have said it's kind of long, you know. I like, can't you short, but you got to understand, we get paid by the minute. So. <laughs> I I wish so much that was true because one thing Mike and I can do is, is talk, yammer on really incessantly. But those people who have written in said they like the intro. Thank you guys. Yeah, we we Thank appreciate you. it. We appreciate it. So uh, this month, this month's a big month in that uh, 22... 22, a bonus two. Of a Christmas <laughs> gift. We're, 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 I'm just going to keep up with the ridiculous... Two and two. Two and two. Be back in two and two. Well, Chuck Woolery there. Chuck Woolery, very nice. See, the know, dating game. I know, I'm not trying to yeah, stump you. I know you're I'm not. not Maybe to... I should have paused for a second to let everybody else try to guess yeah, yeah. what I'm that like, was that's a, I'm, to. I'm lofting that one up, dude. Yeah. You hit it out the park. <laughs> so yeah, we got 22 this month. And then we got the triple T A L N. We got triple T A L N, and that's retraction of medical articles, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like how we have to issue retractions about all the stuff we say all the time. What do you have to do? Wouldn't you have to do that in a more formal manner? How does that work? Yeah, and how bad must it? Because the truth is, we don't have to retract anything, and there's some pure garbage that comes through here. So how bad does something have to be for an official retraction? Right. You'll find out. Right. On and what are the implications nerd. of it? You know. Does and, anyone actually read the retraction? <laughs> and then thankfully we have Jess and Jenny doing our ultra summary. Yep. They will summarize everything we've said in a more concise manner so that you don't have to and listen to it. And this month is actually kind of interesting because I think that the papers sort of run the gamut. Our, uh, you know, our paper chasers are 
a little bit funky. You know, there's uh, an airway one and an ECMO one yep. as paper chasers. And then there's like this big trial of blood pressure and oxygenation that got split into two papers, which we cover kind of middle of the pack. Yep. Because we know there's been a lot of foam stuff out there and MRAP stuff out there already. And then I've got some cool pilots. I'm like, I think it's going to be an interesting month. Yeah, I'm happy with my papers. I mean, I've got not so many RCTs, but a couple and some interesting stuff. And yeah, I will just abstract number eight. That's the the big dog for this this you know study about blood pressure and oxygen and post you know, arrest survivors. And it's awesome. It's awesome. Gotta listen to it. I will. <laughs> well, I know you will. Sanjay's I, right now, he's like, wait, I can skip this? And he, keeps pushing, he keeps pushing skip forward on his phone. I'm like, I it I doesn't work that listen way. listen to Mike's. That's a very interesting... No, I, I actually want to listen to Mike's. I want to learn all this stuff. Hopefully you guys do too. Happy December. Happy holidays. Here let's, we go. Let's get after it. Paper chase. Abstract number one. Impact of Macintosh blade size on endotracheal intubation success in ICUs, a retrospective multi-center observational Mac size ICU study. This is by Godet et al. from Intensive Care Medicine. Now, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry to interrupt so early. That's okay. But did they just say impact of blade size and not ask the question? Does, Does size, size matter? matter? It's coming. It's okay. coming. But it's not in the title. You have it's to not put in it the in the title. title. Well, this intensive care medicine. This isn't uh, you know, one of the journals uh, you might publish. Dr. Today, so, I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> so there's a lot of airway papers out there, and it's important to kind of know them all because securing an airway, I think, is one of the skills that our specialty takes the most pride in, probably maybe more than anything else. And although there has been a move towards routine use of video laryngoscopy, and increased use of airway adjuncts like the bougie, mastery over the DL is still a fundamental part of what we do for ED airways. And when performing a DL, there's actually not that many decisions to make. It's not like, you know, picking meds for the intubation and like all this stuff. It's really just, do you want to use a three blade or a four blade for an adult? And surprisingly, there is some old school doc out there right now who's like, why aren't you talking about Miller blades right now? <laughs> yeah. So I'm just I, I'm Fine. giving a shout out so to if we people. If we're staying, <laughs> keeping the discussion on point in the Mac, people feel really passionate about this. And I'm sure where you work, there's some people who look at you all crazy if you use a three. And if you're using a four, there's other people who are going to look at you like you don't know what you're doing. Surprisingly, there has not been much evidence comparing the two, particularly in terms of first-pass success, right? So the choices are sort of like how you trained, who trained you, maybe some anecdotal evidence. And if you look on the interweb, there's a lot of posts and videos out there explaining why it's interesting. So you, you, like I said, this is a strong argument pro and con. The people who are pro about the Mac 4 say it's probably a little big. For most patients, that being said, Nice to have it if you need it. You know, like a li- you just kind of use it halfway for most people. If you need to go in a little bit deeper, it's there for you. And they're like, that makes sense. I'm just going to use it for everybody. But the people who are against that in favor of the Mac 3 are like, well, it's not just a little longer. It's also wider, mm-hmm. which can obscure your view. And the mechanics of it are it's actually... Not a, it's, it has a different arc. It radius. has a different arc. And so there are some, you know, like if you look online, there's some videos out there 
about how these mechanics actually can change the way that the, you know, you put in the vlecula and lift up the epiglottis indirectly is done. Like the angle you have to, so it is like a little bit different. And it starts you, to turn into a when, Miller when you meet like a big. when you meet like a physicist sort of meets an anesthesiologist. You look at some of these videos; they're like, "This Mac Four is just not right. The yeah. curve is just not right." Yeah, and if you go to a conference where they meet, it's like a battle royale, <laughs> yeah, it's like Anchorman style, <laughs> escalated quickly. So, but generally speaking, these are just opinions. Everything you see on the web is an opinion. In this Mac size ICU study. The authors retrospectively analyzed data from three published prospective randomized studies and one observational study. So these are not trials that were randomizing patients to blade size. They were done for some other airway purpose, and then they just look back at the MAC-3s and the MAC-4s. And these are adults from 48 French ICUs who got DL with a MAC blade for their first attempt. All other techniques were excluded regardless of the reason for intubation. And like I said before, the blade choice was at the discretion of the treating physician. This wasn't in any of the study protocols. And the primary outcome here is pretty straightforward. It's just first attempt success according to blade size, MAC-3 versus MAC-4. They had a total of 2,139 intubations in the data set. About 30% were done with a MAC-3 and about 70% were done with a MAC-4. Patients intubated with a MAC-4 were generally more likely to be male and a little bit taller, but not with a higher BMI. First attempt success rates were statistically different between the 3 and the 4, with the 3 first attempt success rate being just about 80%, and the 4 first attempt success rate being 73%. So they give an NNT here and to prevent one first attempt failure of about 14. Glottic views were similar between the groups, nearly identical actually, but they used those Cormac-Lahane scores, right? They didn't use the POGO score, which I think people think is a little bit more nuanced, the percentage of glottic opening score, to actually see how much more was visible to the intubator. Now, as the groups were different on patient-level characteristics, because they were, to start with, mm-hmm. they calculated propensity scores and used these to carry out an inverse probability of treatment weighting, which is basically a statistical technique used to remove the impact of confounders on a model. And then they apply these weights to the study population, creating a pseudo-population in which confounders are equally distributed among exposed and unexposed groups, That is to say, they basically took into account the fact that they were different to start with. They did this check, and the results held across this, across a multivariate regression model, and across various types of sensitivity checks, all favoring the MAC-3 at an odds ratio of about 1.4. Complication rates were similar across the groups, both minor and severe. So the statistical analyses here are very well conducted. And the data collection, at least the description of it from the parent trials, all four of them was quite rigorous, but this was not a trial designed to look at blade size. Propensity score matching, you know, it accounts for some observable confounders, but it doesn't account for unobservable confounders, no matter what they do. They just can't, you can't do it. So it's, it always looks the same as the regular regression. Usually the coefficients change just a little little. bit. They just, they just shrink down a little bit. And but, I think for, that's really the problem here. 
is that we don't know why a three-blade was chosen in some cases and a four-blade was chosen in the others. And perhaps there's still some unmeasured confounder or patient-level characteristics that's responsible for the findings and not the size of the blade itself. It's also worth noting that all the intubations were done in the ICU and the average BMI of patients in this sample was 25. I'm like, it's France. They got to be small. Yeah, yeah. Which might limit generalization to your run of the mill well, county patient, population. We got the, the Mac 8. Yeah. yeah. The, we call, it's actually it's a Mac 3, but it's a wide body. But I still think it's worth knowing about this paper, even though yeah. it wasn't designed to look at this, because there isn't that much data sure. out there on the topic. So I think, you know, it's particularly people I think who use the Mac 4 who are incredibly passionate about using that Mac 4. It's not like there's some massive difference between the two. There really isn't. And it's possible there's a signal of a MAC-3 being a little bit better. Certainly anesthesiologists would say that's the case. I personally think a MAC-3 is better. I just years, I mean, for years, I used to talk to residents about this. And I don't as much because we talk so much about VL instead. But, you know, my feeling on it was when you start, you're taught, you use a MAC-3. And you do it. And then when you're learning and you don't know what the hell you're doing, you know, you have this sort of like uncomfortableness with the Mac 3 and then you get this Mac 4 and you get, you get some short airway and the Mac 4 rescues you and you think everybody should have a Mac 4 and it goes for several years. You use that Mac 4 and you think this is the greatest thing. And then somehow you revert back to the Mac 3 and you're like, wait a minute. No, this is actually better. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And I, I, all, I So when I see this, I'm thinking in my head. It's because the more experienced people used Mac 3s. It doesn't actually have that much to do with the blade. Yeah, I don't think that's true because if you were to look at sort of even our faculty where well, we work, a lot of people are using Mac 4s. And I'm, I'm like, but we trained at the same I, place. So Mike and I end up practicing clinically sometimes similarly. I use a Mac 3 as well mm-hmm. for all my intubations. I'm very happy with it. I'm sort of of that belief the Mac 4 is a little bit bulky. And it's yes. putting in the mouth, especially in like, you know, some, you know, smaller adults and things just it tends to get in the way more. But. However passionate you feel about this, take a look at this data, see what you think. Maybe it'll change your mind. Maybe not. Editor's commentary. Although many emergency providers passionately believe that there is a correct sized Mac blade to use when performing DL, these opinions are largely based on how you learned and your personal experience and probably not on real data. Shockingly, this is the first large published study Comparing the three blade with the four blade, and although not randomized, first pass success was higher with the three blade across over 2,000 ICU patients without a difference in complication rates. This is hypothesis generating data and might set the stage for a prospective trial designed to answer the question of does size matter? These authors say it does. Abstract number two. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation versus conventional rewarming for severe hypothermia in an urban emergency department. This is by Precker et al., and it's in Academic Emergency Medicine, the official journal of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine. So, Sanjay, all of you out there, I presume you've heard the expression, you ain't dead until you're warm and dead. Of course. Okay. The authors start this paper discussing this. The expression? The expression. And they say it's an aphorism. And I would have said it's an adage. And this is how my brain works. This is my first paper of the month, right? I spent about four hours reading about the difference between an aphorism, an adage, a proverb, a maxim. What are other things that that go in there? You know, I didn't bring it up last month, 
but I spent a long time learning about the difference between acronyms and initialism and sort of what that <laughs> because of some paper that I had read. And, the, you know, and it's really so at first when I was like, OK, I, you know, I never used the word aphorism. I didn't think I'd ever heard that word before. And I, like I said, I would use the adjective. So I looked it up and then I got all excited because I'm like, this isn't an aphorism. Because most of the time, a definition of aphorism, as opposed to an adage, is that it's some sort of like, you know, a quip that has a general truth in it, right? But an aphorism, in most definitions, is usually attributable to a specific person. It's like George Bernard Shaw quote that we all use, but it's attributable to George Bernard Shaw, whereas an adage or proverb is just sort of generally out there. It's been there for 10,000 years and we don't know. He's looking at me like, I hate this is terrible. Okay. But that turns out that that definition in and of itself is controversial. And fundamentally, when you go down to it, all of them can be used interchangeably. It's sad. That was quite a letdown. <laughs> well, I could, I could follow it up. Don't. <laughs> Just don't. Trust me. <laughs> all right. Anyway, regardless of whether this is an aphorism, adage, maxim, proverb, whatever it is, the concept certainly does guide our approach to patients with cardiac arrest presumed due to hypothermia. The principle is pretty easy. Getting very cold reduces basal metabolic rate, particularly cerebral metabolism. Thus, extended periods of, of circulatory collapse in the setting of severe hypothermia can be tolerated. Honestly, I can't remember a study on treatment of hypothermia in the ED in EMA in the last several years. I certainly don't think it. And on top of that, my clinical experience is just severely lacking because I live in Southern California where hypothermia is generally considered to be an external temperature of, you know, what, like 85 degrees or something like that. And that's mean, I mean, ambient temperature, not a core temperature. So we decided to cover this one. And it's particularly apropos because as we've noted, this is the December EMA. So we're heading into those cold winter months. Now, how exactly to rewarm people has been a challenging question. Once a patient is hemodynamically unstable or in cardiac arrest, Active internal rewarming is clearly indicated, but guidelines about which technique to use are relatively general and generally lack evidence. The options include, you know, warm fluid lavage of the pleural and peritoneal cavity, bladder irrigation, stomach irrigation. This is, of course, in addition to the usual other techniques like warm humidified oxygen and then, you know, passive things. The newer kids on the block are rewarming catheters. So essentially, the hypothermia catheter that cools people down, but you just turn the temperature up. And then ECMO, specifically VA ECMO, right? So venous arterial ECMO, not the VV ECMO that we got sort of used to seeing more commonly during COVID. The cool thing about the VA ECMO notion is that not only does it rewarm very well, but you can stop doing CPR once they're hooked up to the circuit, right? You don't have to, and we know it takes a long time to rewarm people and somebody's got to be pushing on it. Or, you know, if you're in a better case scenario, you've got a Lucas device or something like that, but you're talking about a couple hours. This way you hook them up and you just walk away until they're rewarmed and then start, you know, doing the manipulations that you can to restart the heart. This study examines the effects of rewarming using ECMO versus sort of the more conventional techniques. The study was performed at Hennepin in Minnesota where the authors note that the average daily temperature during the winter months from November through March is approximately 24 degrees Fahrenheit. Nice. 
That's that's no wonder. I gotta say, they do a lot of good research. Yeah, they stu- really do. They do because they're stuck inside. Yeah, and they, they gotta got, just why not write a paper? They got it. Would be fascinating to do a paper on the papers that come out of Hennepin, and you know, there's a huge spike, spike in the winter. And then, you know, once the permafrost, I guess not permafrost there, but once the frost thaws, they're out there jet skiing and everything else through the summer months. So, yeah, 24 degrees. So, this is a great place to do it. The study itself was a retrospective chart review of all patients with a bladder temperature less than 28 degrees Fahrenheit over a 14-year study period at this single site. The key outcomes were average hourly warming rate over the first four hours, right? So they're saying, which of these things actually warmed people faster, right? Again, and I think that's a good question. Again, if you've got someone who's 24 degrees and you've got to get them to 32 or something like that before you're willing to say that this is you know, hopeless. Like, is that going to take eight hours? That's a lot of CPR time, you know, or whatever. So that's one and the primary outcome. And then the primary clinical outcome was survival to hospital discharge. So they had a sort of a technical outcome, if you will, and then a clinical outcome. They say that the decision to use ECMO versus the conventional strategy was left up to the treating physician. Not 100%. We might get into that towards the end. The chart review methods are actually generally very good, not pristine. They did a lot of important things like discuss inter-rater agreement for many variables, but importantly, they do not address the issue of blinding to study hypothesis. So patients, you know, so that could, that could lead to some biased assessment. I didn't say it yet, but I'll get to it. But they also looked at survival with good neurologic outcome. And you know, if you knew the study hypothesis, that could impact your assessment of whether the outcome was, was good or bad. Patients were excluded if they did not attempt resuscitation for the hypothermic individual, which they generally say is due to, you know, they either had a frozen chest, like they're just an ice block, in which case there's no survivability, or if the serum potassium is greater than 10, and that's considered to be, you know, no survival ability. And then obviously if they had some other, you know, life-threatening, you know, bullet hole in their head or something like that. That's it. Otherwise they proceeded. They identified 44 patients over those 14 years. So, even in Minnesota, this is pretty rare, right? 44 people, 25 of them received ECMO therapy, and 19 got conventional active rewarming therapy. The ECMO cases were a little bit younger. They were 44 years old on average versus 50 for the you know, active rewarming, but actually they were generally much, much sicker. They were much more likely to be in cardiac arrest, 84% versus only 34% of the other ones. And they were actually more likely to be, they were actually colder on average. Their mean temperature was 24 versus 26. So looking at that, you would think the mortality would be, you know, sort of favoring the conventional therapy because they're just sicker. The conventional group got, you know, the usual stuff like we talked about. They most often got that intravascular rewarming technique. So they got the catheter placed, but not the ECMO. They got the catheter. And then they had some version of bladder lavage. Only rarely did they actually get something like chest lavage, like four out of, you know, maybe like 20% of the people got that. The ECMO group, just for the record, also got some of those other active rewarming techniques like the bladder lavage and things like that, but they just also got the ECMO. All right, so what's the results? Generally, they favored ECMO, okay? Rewarming was much faster at 2.3 degrees centigrade per hour over the first four hours. So in four hours, they raised the temperature by 9.2 degrees centigrade, which basically brings them back to normal temperature. 
versus the other group, which over four hours went to about six degrees centigrade over the, that period, which doesn't even get them back into the sort of normal temperature range. Really importantly, once the ECMO is hooked up, the temperature rises really rapidly. They got people up by seven degrees centigrade over one hour. It just takes a long time to get the ECMO hooked up. So about 90 minutes, something like that. In terms of the outcomes, the, the clinical outcomes, the ECMO group, despite being sicker, 68% survived to hospital discharge compared with 74% in the conventional group. So basically same, same. And the rates for a good neurologic outcome, similar. For what it's worth, it takes about 100 minutes to get ROSC in an ECMO patient. So the time frame that they're describing is patient walks in the door, it takes about 90 minutes at this institution to get them hooked up to ECMO, and then another 100 minutes before ROSC happened in an ECMO patient. So you're dealing with like a total CPR time of, you know, what is that, three hours, right? Okay. The authors then look specifically at patients who were in cardiac arrest on arrival. Okay. There were 28 of those patients. 21 of them got ECMO, seven got conventional therapy, and the results are overwhelmingly in favor of ECMO. 71% survival versus 21% survival. But here's where it gets interesting. The ECMO group in this subset is way less sick than the conventional therapy group. The age was 44, and the age of the conventional group was 63. And we know that advanced age is a really bad indicator for hypothermia. They usually won't even do rewarming if you're over 75 years old. Lactate was lower in the ECMO group, as was the potassium. And as we talked about earlier, the potassium rise is a, is a really, really bad indicator. So in that subset of patients who were in cardiac arrest, the ones that got ECMO were way, way, way less sick than the ones that got conventional therapy. So anyway, so there's a little bit of mixed stuff here. Before we get too excited, I think there are big limitations. And again, the most important is this is decidedly not random treatment allocation. I do suspect some selection bias. If you have a program of ECMO that's available, why wouldn't you use it on patients you believe are salvageable, right? Of course, I think they would. And probably by extension, you would not only not use it when you think patients are not salvageable. And I think that's why we're seeing like the older patients, et cetera, that were likely to die anyway. They said, well, you know, let's not go through this whole thing of hooking them up to ECMO calling in the whole team. We'll give it a little couple hours of active rewarming via, you know, bladder irrigation. But if it doesn't work, we'll, you know, we'll call it a day. And, you know, so I understand that. So ultimately, like most things ECMO, the data are likely biased towards finding a benefit, but there probably is a little bit of truthiness to the finding. The big problem is that the marginal effect size, like how big is the, let's say there's some truth to it, a little bit better. If it's a 50% effect size, then that's a big deal. If it's a 10% effect size, that does change things because this is not like drug A versus drug B. To institute an ECMO program, is a big deal. It requires an enormous resource outlay and it requires, you know, transferring of, you know, hypothermic patients all over the, the county and all these kinds of things. So we really do need to know in an unbiased way how effective this kind of program is before we can endorse doing it. Having said that, if you have ECMO in your facility and the patient has cardiac arrest likely due to hypothermia, I mean, to me, this looks like it's a reasonable indication. I just don't think you could use this as a justification for pursuing an ECMO program. 
Editor's Commentary. This is the largest study to date examining the use of ECMO for the treatment of hypothermic patients. The results show remarkably improved outcome for patients in hypothermic cardiac arrest treated with ECMO compared with conventional therapy. The study is still small, retrospective, and at high risk for selection bias. More evaluation is needed before concluding that ECMO truly is the preferred rewarming technique in most cases. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Higher sensitivity with the lever sign test for diagnosis of ACL rupture in the ED. And this is by Guiraud et al. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. If he's French, it's a good chance. In the Archives of Orthopedic and Trauma Surgery. So previous studies suggest that accurate diagnosis of ACL rupture in the ED after a knee is very complicated. Largely because, you know, we rely on clinical tests for the most part, and when we're doing them, the situation is not ideal, right? The patient's in pain because the injury just happened, the knee is swollen, there's some muscle contracture going on, and then apprehension, but don't don't touch it, don't touch the knee, that's that's where I hurt, I don't want you to go, you know, messing with that thing. Now, unfortunately, providers need to have some level of confidence in their suspicion of an ACL tear. Because it's not like you can just refer everybody to prompt orthopedic follow-up, which would be good if you really thought they had an ACL tear. Now, traditionally, what we've done is we kind of have these two clinical tests we use, the Lachman's test or the anterior drawer test. And there's been a couple of small studies out there, one in the ED that suggested this lever sign has a much better test characteristic. So if you've never done one, it's incredibly easy to do. The lever test is performed in basically three steps. You put the patient supine on the bed. You take your fist and put it at the level of the tibial tuberosity on the back side of the leg, so just distal to the knee. And then you push down on the distal femur, right? Thus creating a lever out of the patient's leg with your fist serving as the fulcrum. If the ACL is intact, the foot will rise up off the bed, aka lever is working. But if the ACL is torn, the patient's foot will remain on the bed, meaning the lever is broken. And basically, this is a prospective study from a single ED in Belgium enrolling adult patients presenting to their emergency department within eight days of injury with a negative x-ray except for a sagand or tibial spine fracture with a positive lever sign and or Lachman sign and or anterior drawer test. They had to have some, something something on the clinical exam was positive. So they had a clinical suspicion of ACL tear. The clinical exams were performed by residents after training all of them on how to do the different tests properly. And then all these patients, everybody with a suspected ACL tear clinically got an MRI within three weeks to see if there really was a tear. And they ended up enrolling a total of 52 patients. In terms of feasibility, this is kind of one interesting part of this, I think, adds to the literature a little bit. The lever test was conducted on all patients. So all 52 got a lever test documented result. But a Lachman test could not be performed on two of them, and an anterior drawer could not be performed on seven because of pain and swelling. So either the patient said, enough, I don't like it. Or the provider was like, I just, I don't feel like I'm getting adequate test here. 40 of the 52 had an ACL rupture, so 77%. And the lever sign 
was the clear winner with a sensitivity of 92.5%. The sensitivity of the Lachman and anterior drawer were 54 and 56% respectively. The full test characteristics, if you're interested, of the lever test were sensitivity, 92%, specificity, 25%, positive predictive value, 82%, and negative predictive value, 50%. 12 of the 40 ACL ruptures, so a third, were diagnosed exclusively with a positive lever sign test. The sensitivity looks great, but this low specificity is a little bit perplexing, at least to me. Why? Well, pretty much all the patients had a tear, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't even know how you could get to that low of a specificity. Oh, because the true negatives? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't... I don't it's, anyway, it's a little bit so, confusing. Yeah, so, I'll agree with that, that usually right. when you're starting with the population that has the disease, you know, the, the test characteristics of the thing that... Tests, exactly. If you don't have the disease, don't really work. That's why it was a little usually, confusing but to me. usually the... The bias is in the other direction. That's right. So, <laughs> so but you know, know it's, it's, it's sensitivity is clearly head and shoulders above the other two. This is still a small sample of patients with a potential for selection bias, right? You do need one positive test to get into this cohort. There's no data here on patients with no positive test to see how the test did there. And it's unclear to me if the assessors were blinded to the study hypothesis which then might bias towards much more favorable findings for the lever test. But in truth, this is pretty much in line with all the other papers out there on the topic. I think this lever test is just good. Yeah. You should probably use it or I, at least I try it. I using it. I was initially very enthusiastic. And then I had a few cases where it was just very difficult to deal with. So, you know, although it, I agree that it's easier than, you know, the anterior drawer, I think everybody knows is garbage, right? I mean, that really is garbage. The Lachman is a good test, but it's hard to do when people have big legs. Having said that, that lever test can be a little tricky too when someone has a really big leg because, you know, you're fist just sinks into the bed. It's hard to get a fulcrum then. Have you had that experience? I mean, well, there's a great video, FYI. I don't know if we could, if it's in MRAP somewhere of you doing your, the lever test on Rhea, your daughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a great video of that. But she's got a little tiny, cute little ACL. <laughs> well, I think that's right. But I think probably the take-home message is going to be in that patient whom it's hard to do a lever, it's going to be even harder to probably. do the other two. So I think none of these tests are perfect. I've never believed the 100% sensitivity. But I think if you're choosing between the three, this is probably going to be my go-to. Editor's commentary. Although there are some issues with blinding and bias, this is another ED-based study suggesting that the lever test should be our go-to when examining a patient with a suspected ACL injury. I don't know how accurate their proposed test characteristics are, but I do know that the Lachman and anterior drawer can be hard to perform due to pain and swelling and have been shown to have poor interrater reliability. The lever test for most patients is easy to do. I have started using it routinely and suggest that everyone listening at least try it out. Abstract number four, cosmetic outcomes of simple pediatric facial lacerations repaired with skin adhesive compared with skin adhesive with underlying adhesive strips. A randomized controlled trial. This is by Munz et al. And it's in pediatric emergency care. So this one's interesting, right? The idea here is that, you know, obviously repairing lacs can be a little bit delicate, particularly in children and people who act like children and won't stay still. We try to use Dermabond in those circumstances as much as possible because it's quick, but it can sometimes be difficult to approximate the wound edges with your fingers, right? And then you're trying to do Dermabond with either your fingers or assistance fingers, 
and then you you know you put the the dermabond on and you glue your fingers onto the wound and then you peel your fingers off and the wound rips back open and the parents are like I thought you were a doctor <laughs> you know, like it is you know you I, it, that's a very frustrating situation it happens right and it's like makes you look well, especially on like little kitty faces where yeah. you don't have like you know like the, the, your fingers to yeah. take up the whole face yeah, you know? yeah so absolutely. that it makes a lot of sense and, in this population and you've done all this preamble with the parents where you're like we're gonna do it. and everybody's talking and it's like everybody's happy and then you glue your fingers to the <laughs> yeah the it is embarrassing because yeah. like the parents would look at you and be like do you seriously just super glue yourself <laughs> to my kid <laughs> and tear his face back open oh uh, yeah good so we've seen this newer technique described in a previous study you use skin adhesive strips so steri strips right with Dermabond. And the, basically, you put the steri strips down and you close the wound with steri strips, recognizing that that's just to approximate the wound edges. And then you just pour Dermabond over the whole thing and you see what happens. The one study that I recall, I think you did it, was like a, a, a pig model and they were describing tensile strength, right? Like, what's when you do this, what's stronger if you just start pulling things apart? And they said that the steri strips and Dermabond are better than either one alone. Which gave us a little bit of, you know, hope that this might be yeah, a thing. I, yeah, I think the issue with that one was it was definitely stronger, but how strong did you need it to be? You well, know, if the it, dermabond itself right. was strong enough, then maybe save yourself. The, right. This is asking a very different question yeah. of how do you not super glue your hand to the face? Right. Which is exactly. a great question. Right. And when you say it and you're like, well, if it's strong, then you should just not even need to study it. But the truth is that, you know, the question, I've always had this question is, you know, if you put the steri strips in and that's what glues sticks to the face and then you put dermabond over the top, you might be interfering with the dermabond bonding to the skin to hold it in place. So, you know, you get this amalgam of blood and scab and dermabond and steri strip that maybe that's just like can just wash off, you know, it just like slides off. So that's, that's sort of the issue. The authors here at uh, UT Austin did a small RCT to begin to sort this out. What, you know, what's the impact on cosmesis and the, the reopening rate, if you will. So they enrolled kids with, that were less than 18 years old with simple facial lacs that required repair. They were randomized to dermabond alone or steri strips with dermabond. The primary outcome was a little unclear just by the way they reported it, but it seemed to be scar cosmesis at two months. And this was assessed via a photograph by blinded assessors. Other outcomes, and this one was really important, were short-term wound problems within one week. And those were assessed via a telephone follow-up. They called the mom and said, you know, did, did anything happen? Did it open up? Did you need to have anything to get infected, et cetera? It's really a nice effort, actually. They enrolled 120 patients, which actually met their enrollment criteria. And they had a sample size calculation. They tried to account for loss to follow-up, all that kind of stuff. They had 120 patients, 60 in each group. 93% of them got the one-week telephone follow-up, but only 77%, well, or I should say, and 77% returned to the ED at two months. And what they did is they got to the ED and they took a picture of the wound, and then they showed the picture to an assessor and said, what do you think? You know, rate this, the scarring on this patient. So what they find at two months, the blinded rater assessed the scar severity to be about 60 on a VAS, with 100 being the absolute worst and zero being, I can't even see it. They rated it at 60, and that did not differ between the two groups. So nothing, I mean, literally it was like 60 and 60. At the one-week follow-up, they found that a few kids, I think it was about four or five, in each group required 
some additional repair, like the wound had reopened, usually because the kid ran back into the same wall that they ran into the first time. So it wasn't like it just popped open. It was like, nah, he fell again and you know, same wound popped back open. But that too did not differ between the two groups. So that's great. Overall, this is a small study. It's only 60 kids. It suggests that stereostripping a wound does not cause obvious problems, right? It's not more likely to result in that whole complex being lifted off and reopening, or that doesn't seem to happen at an alarming clip. That also doesn't suggest that it necessarily improves things. And for, you know, for what it's worth, these are very simple lacks. We have no idea. Are these the kind that were gaping, in which case you'd think the Steri-Strip would probably help more or not? They did do a couple of other things like ask the provider, which did you like better? You know, which one took longer? And the Dermabond with Steri-Strips took like a few seconds longer, but really no difference, no difference. So, you know, I think what this is telling me is use whichever one, whichever technique you think is necessary for the wound in front of you. If it's a wound that's already well approximated, I probably would just put Dermabond right over the top. But if it's one that's a little gaping or something like that, you're, you're having difficulty closing with just your fingers or your assistant, you're worried about all this glue getting you where there's no evidence that putting Steri-Strips on it and then putting Dermabond over the top of that is more likely to cause problems than trying to glue your fingers onto their face and all that kind of stuff. Edit this commentary. This is a pretty nice, modestly sized RCT looking at wound cosmesis for facial lacerations in children treated with Dermabond or a combination of Dermabond and Steri-Strips. The results, albeit a little limited, suggest that the outcomes are the same across the groups. So feel free to use whichever technique you feel in your clinical judgment is most useful. Abstract number five a randomized study of IV hydromorphone versus IV acetaminophen for older patients with acute severe pain. This is by Coley et al. from the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Now, there have been several studies that we have covered, some of them, suggesting that older patients in the ED are at high risk for undertreatment of pain. And this is due to a variety of things, including maybe slow or delayed recognition of pain in that population, maybe due to fears of medication-induced side effects, and maybe due to worries about medication interactions with some other things that they may be taking. IV opioids are effective for the treatment of acute severe pain in all age groups, but concerns around adverse reactions, coupled with this fear of the opioid epidemic, have resulted in a big push to minimize the use of opioids in the ED when possible. Now, data on the best first-line analgesic for adults, older adults in the ED, is a little bit limited. So these authors basically conduct a randomized study comparing a gram of acetaminophen IV to 0.5 milligrams of hydromorphone IV. Research assistants enrolled patients 24-7 at two emergency departments in New York looking for people who were age 65 or greater with acute severe pain which was operationally defined as a patient in whom the treating physician was planning to use opioids. So the thought was, all right, this pain is bad enough. I'm going to give them some opioids. And it sounds like the RAs were like, stop, let's enroll them in this trial. Let's randomize them to get something in a blinded fashion. They excluded patients who had used opioids or tramadol in the previous week or had used over-the-counter meds in the previous eight hours those with chronic pain, daily pain, and those who are deemed clinically unstable. 
The design was a double-blinded, randomized design, and the medication was prepared by a research pharmacist who was not in the ED, not physically present at that moment. The primary outcome was improvement at pain at 60 minutes, and secondary outcomes were need for rescue medications and presence of side effects. So they enrolled 163 patients. About two-thirds were women, and the baseline median pain score was 10 out of 10. The location of the pain was in the abdomen, flank, or pelvis in just over half of the cases, and in an extremity in about another quarter. At 60 minutes, pain scores improved by 3.6 in the acetaminophen arm versus 4.6 in the hydromorphone arm. Rescue medications were needed more often with acetaminophen, 46% versus 38%, and side effects seen in the ED. So they didn't like follow these patients out for, you know, four or five hours or something. It was just during the study period, things like dizziness, drowsiness, headache, nausea were less frequent in the acetaminophen group, 7% versus 12%. Although the between group difference of one point, right? That's what it was. 3.6 versus 4.6 on the NRS was statistically significant, that difference. The authors end up basically saying that the two are equally efficacious because this one-point difference is not clinically significant because it doesn't reach that threshold of 1.3, which is what's sort of commonly used in these pain studies. This is an Annals of Emergency Medicine paper, so you expect a lot of data to be presented, and it is. There's a bunch of figures with some really rich data at multiple time points, and although they don't provide p-values, Sort of the the thick part of the bar graphs, you know, the 25th to the 75th quartiles, never reach zero in the acetaminophen patients, but they do in the hydromorphone patients at 90, 120, and 180 minutes. Also, about a third of the patients in the acetaminophen group had 50% pain reduction at one hour versus over half in the hydromorphone group who had 50% pain reduction at one hour. I think we need to take their findings in the context of other studies on the topic, including a 220-patient randomized control trial from Barnaby et al. in the Annals of Emergency Medicine from 2018, which showed a much larger reduction in pain with IV hydromorphone than with IV acetaminophen. The truth is, the study procedures are really well done here, very well described, and the trial methodology appears very rigorous. The largest limitations, and in fairness, all these limitations are stated by the author, so this isn't just me being critical, are the large number of excluded patients and the highly subjective enrollment criteria, which I think creates a serious threat to generalizability to other ED populations because, you know, if these investigators sort of knew what was going on, they might have gamesmanship to come into this trial by saying, ah, I'm gonna give that person IV opioid. So right. it's a well-done study. I think we need to take it in context with other findings. They are really spinning this as like, hey, this is strong evidence that, you know, acetaminophen is good enough. But for me, I think the question is still a little bit open. In this well-done randomized control trial from two emergency departments, the authors found a statistically significant difference in pain reduction from IV hydromorphone compared with IV acetaminophen that did not translate to a clinically meaningful difference among older patients with acute pain. There are serious threats to generalizability of findings based on the large number of excluded patients and subjective entrance criteria 
and another similar RCT on the topic found conflicting results. For my money, I echo the sentiments of the EMA godfather and one of my mentors, Jerry Hoffman, that an opioid-free ED is just not right, as some patients do in fact need them and they work effectively when used correctly. On a soapbox, it's also important to remember that we are not the cause of the opioid epidemic. Abstract number six, imaging characteristics and CT sensitivity for pyogenic spinal infections. This is by Schroyer et al. in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So pyogenic spinal infections are kind of a big deal. If untreated, they can you know, occasionally rapidly progress to neurologic injury, but they can be hard to diagnose and accordingly are often missed on the initial ED visit. Of course, a major reason for this miss is that it's difficult and maybe impossible to obtain an MRI in most ED settings. And historically, CT scan is thought to have very poor sensitivity for some of these infections. There's also part of the reason that there's some lack of clarity about this is that there's heterogeneity of what a pyogenic spinal infection actually is. So the authors note that really that definition has not really been well established, and they're proposing that a pyogenic spinal infection is a heterogeneous term that includes spinal epidural abscess, okay, that one I think we understand, vertebral osteomyelitis and discitis, which I have to admit, I get that diagnosis every once in a while, and I'm kind of like, what does that mean again? You know, septic facet joints, which I'm not sure I've ever heard of, but it probably exists because they found them, and paravertebral abscesses, including like either the paravertebral muscle itself or the psoas muscle, and they call both of those paravertebral muscles because they're right along the, the vertebral bodies. The purpose of this study was twofold. The first was to describe the universe of these pyogenic abscesses, like how many of each of those different subtypes are they, how much overlap are there, or like, you know, when you have one, how often do you have a second one, those kinds of questions. And secondly, and I think perhaps more importantly, is to estimate the sensitivity of modern CT scanning for detecting these types of infections, particularly for spinal epidural abscess, since that's the culprit lesion in most of the cases that progress to paralysis. So this study is a retrospective review of a prospective data set that was collected in an attempt to derive a clinical decision aid to predict pyogenic spinal abscess. Patients being evaluated for such infections were enrolled in this registry over a 15-year period. Mean age was 55, a minority, only 10%, were injection drug users, and 22% presented after a recent spinal procedure. For the part one of the study, the key take-home point is that if there is one, there are many. They had 89 patients with pyogenic spinal infection in this registry data set. 69% of them had a spinal epidural abscess, so the majority had a spinal epidural abscess. Of those, 82% had another type of lesion as well, very commonly vertebral osteomyelitis or discitis or something like that. Only 18% of spinal epidural abscess had an isolated spinal epidural abscess with nothing else. Interestingly, 17 patients of the total that had, you know, one or many types of infections had multiple segments of the spine involved. And that doesn't mean like T1 and T2. That means multiple is like cervical, thoracic, and lumbar, often with skip lesions, meaning they would have cervical and lumbar or something like that. 
so that you know there's it's common to have multiple things along the spinal cord. So that's for part one. For part two, how did CT do? Well, that a little bit depends, but mostly terribly. First of all, they only included patients in part two who had an MRI, right, that was the gold standard, and had a CT within seven days prior to the MRI. So this cuts the sample down from like 89 people all the way down to 14. So the large majority of people who were diagnosed on MRI didn't have a CT scan at all. But 14 of them had both. And how did CT do? So everybody there, though, had something of those 14. Only seven of those 14 were detected on the original CT read. And that's very important. They had authors read the read. And then they said, yeah, there's no mention of any of those vertebral, you know, osteomyelitis, discitis, spinal epidural abscess, et cetera. When they had a research neuroradiologist look at them, then that sensitivity rose from what was 50% to 79%. So it still missed 20%, but it increased. But that's a little bit misleading, right? Because that guy, and they don't tell us, but that person may have known what the hypothesis was and a host of other things, and they're a super well, specialist. Well, you imagine, kind of too, that, I mean, the, the people who are reading the initial CT, they probably got some rule-out abscess, yeah, that, like, as well. It so, probably wasn't, you know, yeah, trauma. The 50% you know. sounds like it's much more reflective of what you can expect right. where you are working. That's right. Yeah, maybe if you had a real super specialist who really knew everything, but you can't rely on that, right? Of course. So, that's that. Now, this is the part that I think is really important. So already it's not very good. It's 50 to 80, 80 on the high end, right? But this is really important. A bunch of those people, 11 of the 14, had a spinal epidural abscess, 11 of the 14 people. And the CT found it in two cases. So a sensitivity of 18%. And that's just, that just plain sucks. And that's the lesion that we really have to worry about, right? So what does it all mean? Under maybe optimal conditions, patients in whom the doctor has enrolled, you know, the, the doctor said this is a, we're hunting for this, and maybe with great neuroradiologists and all that kind of stuff, maybe the sensitivity for any infection can rise up to 80%, but it's probably more like 50%, which is terrible. And for spinal epidural abscess, it's much, much worse, 20%. So if you are seriously suspecting spinal epidural abscess or other spine infection, get the MRI. Somehow, get the MRI. And I know that's a tough ask, but we just have to know that if you don't, you're going to miss a lot, if not most, of these kinds of conditions. On the flip side, if for some reason you get a CT scan, either it's available to you or you know you get it for trauma, you thought it was a trauma case and you get it and it shows something like osteomyelitis or paravertebral abscess, then you still need to get the MRI because there's this high coincidence of spinal epidural abscess in those. And I think it's, it might be unwise to hope that the admitting internist knows that they need to do this. So it's probably, you know, at a minimum, you have to discuss with them and say, like, they have this vertebral discitis or osteomyelitis. They need to get a, a, you know, an MRI before they go, you know, to identify a potential spinal epidural abscess so that they don't get paralyzed on the floor while they're getting antibiotics for a day or so. And finally, in the case where this happens and you, you know, you, you've done the ver- vertebral osteomyelitis and you're, you're like, they still need the MRI, it probably is reasonable to scan the whole spine. So when that neurosurgeon or the internist is like, right, okay, let's take a look, scanning the whole spine because of this issue with skip lesions, it does actually make sense. Editist commentary. 
This important study of patients with confirmed pyogenic spinal infection shows that CT has poor sensitivity for these infections and providers should obtain an MRI if there's a high clinical suspicion. Further, the findings suggest that spinal epidural abscess is coincident with a variety of other spinal infections which may be detected on CT. So if one of these is found on CT, urgent MRI is probably indicated to exclude cord-threatening lesion. Abstract number seven. Characteristics of pediatric nasal foreign body cases required multiple removal procedure. A single tertiary medical center cross-sectional study. This is by Kawaguchi et al. from Pediatric Emergency Care. Seeing a patient with a nasal foreign body in the ED is not incredibly common, but when a kid presents with something in their nose, this can be an anxiety-provoking experience for the kid, the parent, and you as the provider. Now, our main job is basically to decide which technique should we use for removal. And there is a wide range out there, including the ever-popular parent's kiss. The mother's kiss, yeah. This is yes. called parent, we've, it's parent's we've, kiss we've, now. We've uh, degendered it. Absolutely. Makes sense. The Ambu bag positive pressure, which is kind Ambu. of like, uh, you know, That's so the, they don't get snot all over yeah, their face if you want to do the parent's kiss. The super glue, putting a little super glue on a stick, you know, putting it in there if you can grab it if the patient is cooperative enough. There's various types of forceps you can use with or without a wire loop at the tip of it. You can pass a balloon catheter past the object and then blow up the balloon and pull it back out. Ding, ding, and ding. Then, that's the best one. And then there's specialized commercial tools, of course, that are built to do exactly this thing. But Mike says the catheter is the best. Which one is the best? And what they're asking here is, does the best option vary by foreign body type or by some patient-level characteristic? This is a retrospective chart review from a single ED from Kobe Children's Hospital in Japan, including all patients less than 16 years old with a confirmed nasal foreign body seen over a two-year period. Basically, they collected demographic information, details about the foreign body and the history, and then the removal techniques that were attempted. Patients were then divided into two groups, successful on the first removal attempt and failed on the first removal attempt. And although they do a really nice job listing out all the different variables they collected, unfortunately, they list nothing at all and provide no details on how they were collected or the chart methodology or how missing data or conflicting data was dealt with. So they present information from 104 patients, median age three years, about 50% male, and forceps were the most common method of initial removal in just over a third of the patients, followed by clamps, and lastly by the parents' kiss at only 16%. Removal was successful on the first attempt in 72% of patients they observed a statistically significant difference in the first method used between groups driven by the use of the parent's kiss, which was used in about 3% of the first-time success group and over half of the first-time failure group. Basically saying for them, parent's kiss didn't work at all. The overall success rates of parent's kiss are much lower than described in previous studies, where generally this is thought to be like a pretty good first attempt while you're getting your, you know, tools together or whatever, just put a face shield on mom or dad and have them like, you know, blow in the kid's mouth. And the authors Maybe actually- Maybe they didn't know they had to close the, the other cut, the yeah. contralateral nares. It's possible. 
But the authors actually talk about this and suggest something very different, saying just locally, culturally, the way parents interact with kids in Japan is very different. And getting them to sort of put their mouth over the kid's mouth and blow in a bit is like very locally. Yeah, I found that very interesting. I mean, if you don't, I mean, look, that's a very technique. That's technique, right? The parents kiss. You got to do that right. You got to time it with the breathe. You got to do a bunch of stuff. I thought it was interesting that the parents, they talked about that. Yeah. They give lots of detail then about the failed first attempt group and breakdown technique used by object shape, which is what I thought was going to be a really interesting part of this paper. And unfortunately, I think it's difficult, if not impossible, to extract any good take-home points because the patient list of failure, they just kind of list out every patient is all over the map in terms of you know age and object and stuff like that. And then they make a pie chart for each object. And it looks pretty much like an even breakdown of removal technique across all type, other than more positive pressure being used in beads. And other than spherical, it was kind of like spherical and other. They just like grouped everything else into an other, which so I don't really know what to take out of that. But one thing I think we can take home is that even though their approaches seem a little bit different and the techniques were a little bit different where this was conducted, There were only seven cases that had failure to remove the foreign body after all attempts. So although this is a large case series, application and generalization of their findings is severely limited by poor, basically non-existent chart review methodology. Concerns in my mind about documentation, there's no way to know if failed attempts or non-invasive efforts like uh, having a child blow it out themselves were even documented. Maybe they just documented the one successful one really not sure. They used really complicated statistical models throughout this thing, which I didn't even go into. And there's obviously no way to know if there's some other patient or foreign body level variable that influenced the first attempt method chosen. Editor's commentary. In this large retrospective study on pediatric nasal foreign body, Limitations in the methods and concerns about missing and undocumented variables don't allow me to support their conclusion that a parent's kiss first is associated with a high first failure rate. There are still two take-home messages for me. One, there are lots of techniques to remove a foreign body from a pediatric patient's nose, and it's worth reviewing some of the more popular ones and seeing if there's a device out there that might already be sitting in your emergency department And two, the overall success rate was still really, really high at close to 95%. Abstract number eight, Blood Pressure Targets in Comatose Survivors of Cardiac Arrest by Gagard. And this is in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this paper, the study, is totally amazing with totally pedestrian and predictable results, which is why it was not the paper chase. The point is that when people don't wake up after cardiac arrest, we have forever been doing supportive care, but we really don't know what that means in technical terms. That's just sort of like, do what you do, you know? We've learned over time that supportive care includes maintaining normothermia, not therapeutic hypothermia. We also have learned that that means don't take them immediately to the cath lab unless they have a STEMI. You know, and that's about all we know, really. We think that you should keep them with normal blood pressures, right? That makes sense. But we don't know what normal blood pressures means. Like, you know, 
there's normals like a map of 70, but should we be targeting a low normal map or should we be targeting a high normal map or something like that? Would that matter? If it made a difference, it would matter because that has implications for how much vasopressor use you use, how much you know, sedation you use, etc. So the authors here conducted an extremely ambitious double-blind RCT to determine optimal oxygen levels and blood pressure in comatose survivors of cardiac arrest, outpatient cardiac arrest, that is. In this manuscript, the one I'm reviewing right now, they only discuss the blood pressure findings. So I'll leave it to Sanjay to talk about the oxygen manuscript, which is next. Now, I said this is a double-blind study. So that means the patient's blind and the treating providers are blind to treatment allocation or allocation. How do you blind the treating physicians to the target blood pressure if it's different, if they have to make the adjustments in the vasoactive medications to hit that target, right? And in this case, they were interested in a sort of a low normal map versus a high normal map. So how do you do that? And the answer is you lie to them. This is truly awesome. They set up the blood pressure monitor to give a false reading that was either 10% higher or 10% lower than the true reading. And that way, they instructed all the providers to target a map of 70, right? But when a person is randomized to the high normal blood pressure, when they targeted a map of 70, their true blood pressure was actually 70, or their true map was actually 77. And when the, someone was randomized to the low normal, then the map that read on the monitor was 70, but the true map was 63. So that's like totally amazing. And they've never, you know, this is something that's never been done before. So the methodology itself is incredible. It's something you could probably never do in an American ICU, but you can in Denmark. And they noted that the need for informed consent was waived. So, you know, congratulations to these guys. This is a really, really interesting way. It opens the door for some other stuff. Blood pressure adjustments were protocolized in their ICU via a pretty straightforward process. Give fluids to increase the blood pressure until the CVP is elevated. Then use norepinephrine. And if that doesn't work, then add dopamine. And if that doesn't work, add whatever you want. The primary outcome was a composite of death, severe disability, or vegetative state within 90 days. So although it's a composite outcome and we generally sort of poo-poo composite outcomes, each of those outcomes is sufficiently devastating and sort of equally so that I, I like it. The mean age was 63. Mostly they were men. Most had shockable initial rhythms, 86%. Many had STEMIs. But that's sort of the who's who in this study. And I won't belabor the findings since I already told you basically at the beginning, it's a big fat negative study. There were no meaningful differences between the target BP groups in terms of the primary outcome. It was basically 30% in each of them or any of the individual elements of the composite endpoints. So whether it was vegetative state or death or severe neurologic disability, or in terms of severe adverse events, it's not like the high target had all sorts of ischemia to their limbs and the low target had all sorts of you know worsening sepsis or something like that. That didn't happen. So of course, there are caveats here. First, and, and I think this is really one that's really important, they do show the blood pressure curves between the two groups and they do separate. So treatment allocation was concealed apparently through the, the course. And you're like, well, how would you not, how would you unblind it if 
the monitor was lying, but you could just take like a manual blood pressure. Like that might happen. And then they'd be like, oh, okay, well, we're going to target something a little different. But that's not what happened. The two groups had different blood pressures. So this seems to be like the true effect of having different targets. That said, remember, this does not mean that any old blood pressure will do, right? These patients were targeted to maps of 63 versus 77, and nobody was allowed to go below 63. So if you have people that are hypotensive, we don't know if they would have similar outcomes or not. That's just not studied. Just the difference between high and low map was studied here. Still, this is an exceptional study, and the methodology is absolutely impressive. And it actually, although it's negative, opens the door for studying the utility of different blood pressure targets for all sorts of patients with other clinical conditions that we always have these questions about, like stroke and things like that. It's always been difficult because of this blinding and, and stuff like that. So really kudos to the authors for devising a methodology to allow us to study targeted blood pressure or different targeted blood pressures in patients who otherwise it would be really, really difficult in a blinded manner. It just didn't work for this particular set of targets. Editor's commentary. This extraordinary double-blind study demonstrated that clinical outcomes for comatose survivors of outpatient cardiac arrest were similar whether the target map was 63 or 77 millimeters of mercury. Abstract number nine. Oxygen Targets in Comatose Survivors of Cardiac Arrest. This is by Schmidt et al. from the New England Journal of Medicine. And if you've just finished listening to abstract number eight, if you're listening in order, you will know this is the companion piece, the other part of the two-by-two trial. So in cardiac arrest and during resuscitation, the brain is exposed to hypoxia. And for patients who survive but remain comatose, data on the appropriate amount of oxygen to provide is conflicting, making the ideal oxygenation target largely unknown. So this is the blood pressure and oxygenation targets in post-resuscitation care, the BOX trial, evaluating whether a restrictive or liberal oxygen target was superior with respect to a composite outcome, as Mike described in the last paper, of death from any cause or discharge from the hospital in a poor neurologic state among comatose survivors with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This was an open label, so unlike the blood pressure part of it, they did a very cool blinding strategy. This part of it was open label randomized trial with a 2 by 2 factorial design, looking at these oxygen and blood pressure targets from two sites in Denmark. Patients were randomized to receive a partial pressure of arterial oxygen, a PaO2, of 9 to 10 kilopascals, or 68 to 75 millimeters of mercury in the restrictive target group, or 13 to 14 kilopascals, 98 to 105 millimeters of mercury in the liberal target group. Now, to think about these targets in terms of O2 sat, you know, because I'm like kilopascals, you kind of need to look at that oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve. But roughly speaking, a PaO2 of 60 corresponds to an O2 sat of 90. So be thinking about that, right? So the lower one in this group was 68 to 95. So that's kind of like a low 90s versus kind of more of a mid 90s for the high group. They present intent to treat data on just under 800 patients. The median time from cardiac arrest to randomization was 146 minutes. Shockable rhythm was seen in 85%. A witnessed arrest in 85%. Bystander CPR occurred in 87%. Time until ROSC was about 20 minutes. 
and 91% of the group got immediate coronary angiography. On arrival in the ICU, the PAO2s were actually similar across the groups, but much like that blood pressure trial, they did achieve separation, and they achieved that separation at about two to four hours and remained for the first 48 hours of their stay. In terms of results, the primary outcomes are essentially the same across groups, just like the blood pressure findings. The primary outcome were as observed in 32% of the restrictive group and 34% of the liberal group. And at 90 days, death had occurred at 29% of the restrictive group versus 31% of the liberal group. Secondary outcomes focused on clinical and laboratory neurologic outcomes were also basically exactly the same between the groups. So this is a well-done trial with balanced groups at baseline and adherence to their trial protocols and procedures. Limitations are, it's unclear to me if this is a consecutive sample of patients. They did only enroll patients with a suspected cardiac cause. You cannot apply this to all out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. The oxygen goals were not actually achieved until several hours into their stay. And unlike the other trial, this was an open-label design. So the fact that some patients in the restrictive group actually had oxygen levels over their target, you know, they just like oxygenate a little bit better, might bias this whole thing towards the null. So another negative outcome in a super well-done trial. Editor's commentary. In this large, well-conducted, and highly publicized 2 by 2 trial comparing a liberal with a restrictive oxygenation target, the authors found no difference in mortality or severe disability among survivors of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with a suspected cardiac cause. Quick take. Abstract number 10, this is a quick take. Is there benefit to concurrent x-ray imaging of the wrist, forearm, and elbow in pediatric patients following a fall on the outstretched hand? This is by Scaldino et al., and it's the Journal of Medical Radiation Sciences. The question is whether or not we should be routinely x-raying the joint above and below an injured upper extremity, in this case, after a child has a foosh. This is a single-site retrospective study out of New South Wales where they state that by protocol, they x-ray the wrist, forearm, and elbow of any child with a foosh mechanism who's getting any of the individual x-rays. Just like they just, you write wrist x-ray, foosh, they do all three. They identified all the children with an x-ray request for an upper extremity injury and who had an identified fracture. They then go through the charts to determine where the region of interest was, whether it was the wrist, forearm, and elbow, Then they looked to see if there was a fracture distant from that region of interest. The methods are not good. They do not describe exactly who determined the region of interest and how reliable that assessment was. Nonetheless, they found 1,100 some odd x-rays of 0 to 10-year-olds with foosh. About 400 of them had a fracture somewhere. So about two-thirds were just totally negative. They had three negative x-rays. Of those 476 positives, only eight, 1.7%, were found in areas outside the region of interest. Five of those eight had a second fracture, and three of those eight had a negative area of interest on the original x-ray or or, or on the the x-ray of that region and had one that was distant. I think this is an overestimate of the secondary or distant injury rate as providers likely do not document very well the area of tenderness 
especially if they know the patient's going to get it all x-rayed anyway. So you're like, oh, it's wrist, and, you know, they whatever. He's going to get his elbow x-rayed. Don't worry about it. Further, this estimate only includes patients who had a fracture identified. The large majority of patients, as they said, didn't have a fracture. So instead of eight out of 476, I think it's really eight out of 1,161, which is way less than 1%. You know, on the other hand, it may be that the authors were exceedingly generous in determining the region of interest, you know, because we just don't understand their chart review methods at all. And I, you know, that's a big methodologic flaw. Still, this all rings true to me. There's a non-zero risk of a concurrent secondary injury in a child with Fouche. It's probably in the neighborhood of around 1%, and this is consistent with other literature. I suspect you can figure out who that 1% is and avoid uh, additional x-rays with a careful examination. And if you really, really think this kid definitely broke his arm and you you think it's the wrist and you do a wrist x-ray and there's no wrist fracture, then maybe, you know, repeat x-rays more proximal in that kid. But I certainly don't think you need to do it on every kid. I think it's just wasteful. Edit this commentary. This small study for children with Fouche injuries suggests the chance of identifying an injury in an area that was not suspected is around 1% or maybe less. The methodologic limitations make this estimate less certain, but conform with most of the literature on this topic and generally suggest that routine x-rays of the joint above and below are not necessary. Quick take. Abstract number 11. Diagnostic test accuracy of dipstick urinalysis for diagnosing urinary tract infection in febrile infants attending the ED by Waterfield et al. from the Archives of Disease in Childhood. This is also a quick take. So febrile infants age under 90 days are at high risk of serious bacterial infections with the most common by far being urinary tract infections in this age group. A urine dipstick has the advantages of being quick, right? And you don't have to involve the laboratory. So, you know, put it in some tube and send it somewhere for somebody else to process. But if we're going to use it as a standalone test, sort of rely on that dipstick, we need to be very confident that it is in fact accurate. So data for this diagnostic test accuracy study come from the Febrile Infants Diagnostic Assessment and Outcome Study, the FIDO study from emergency departments across the UK and Ireland. Basically, they retrospectively identified 275 infants aged less than or equal to 90 days with a fever, a dipstick test, the urine dipstick test, and a culture result, and they considered a culture positive being greater than 100,000 colony-forming units per ml of a single organism, excluding contaminants, and a UA, looking for pyuria. Of collected samples, 92% were clean catch, and about 14% of the total had a confirmed UTI. They basically evaluate the test characteristics at a range of potential cut points, you know, trace positive, one plus, etc., and found that having any leukocytes, including trace, resulted in the highest sensitivity at 84% with a specificity of 73%, Interestingly, the numbers in the abstract are different than the numbers in the body of the paper. I'm not sure why, but I'm going to go with the numbers in the body of the paper. And the most specific result was positive nitrites, including trace, with a specificity of 91% and a sensitivity of 42%. 
requiring both the presence of leukocytes and nitrates was highly specific for UTI in this cohort at 93 to basically 100%, but very poorly sensitive with the CI going all the way down to zero. So, you know, basically this is saying it's specific if there's nitrites there and that may be useful in your bedside test making decisions. Editor's commentary. In this diagnostic test accuracy study of the urine dipstick among febrile infants less than 90 days old, the authors found the presence of leukocytes had moderate sensitivity when evaluating for UTI, but the presence of nitrites was highly specific. These results suggest it performs better as a rule in test than a rule out test in clinical decision making. Abstract number 12, prevalence and management of invasive bacterial infection in febrile infants aged two to six months. This is by Green et al., and it's in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. We talk all the time about the workup of febrile babies. We now know pretty convincingly that non-toxic appearing infants over six months old basically don't need any fever workup at all. Maybe a UA in some girls if there's truly no other source. For kids two to six months, we know the risks are now, because of community penetration of the Hib and pneumococcal vaccination, we generally know that they don't need big workups like they used to. But the authors point out that we still don't have very precise modern estimates of the invasive infection rate in this partially vaccinated group, right? Because they've only, you know, three months old, you've had one vaccination of the Hib and pneumococcal, et cetera. So we see a fair amount of practice variation with some places doing a lot of blood cultures and maybe even tapping some of these kids, and then other ones, you know, sending them home with follow-up PMD. So these guys conducted a retrospective chart review with a nested case control study at five children's hospitals. The goal was to describe the prevalence of invasive bacterial infection in children presenting to the ED with a fever in this sort of two to six month age group and to identify any risk factors for invasive bacterial infection. Invasive bacterial infection, unlike the previous one where Sanjay was talking about serious bacterial infection, invasive bacterial infection means positive blood cultures or positive CSF cultures. Little UTIs just don't fit in there. They excluded children who had known chronic medical conditions and kids who clearly had normal temperatures. So to enter, you had to have, you know, a abnormal temperature and not have chronic illness. But importantly, they did not exclude ill-appearing children. And I'll get into that in a moment. The methods are really good, like excellent. People interested in chart reviews should read them, particularly people interested in multi-site chart reviews. The terms were very clearly defined. Each site received identical code books. All measures had inter-rater agreement assessed. Is really nice work by Dr. Green et al. It really probably should serve as kind of like a model's paper for folks. They ultimately identified over 21,000 children with fever and ED presentation during an approximately 10-year period in that two to six-month age group, et cetera. Not all the sites had the same thing because it was all based on when their EMR went live, et cetera, but that's roughly what happened. The mean age was four-month with an even gender split. Most children did not have a blood culture or CSF performed. Just about 6,000 out of the 21,000 had one of those things done. To determine if the patient had invasive bacterial infection, therefore, they relied on blood and CSF cultures for those who had it. 
and clinical follow-up. And that was specifically really bounce back rate for those who didn't have that. What did they find? 101 children out of the 21,000, so 0.45%, were found to have invasive bacterial infection. 88% of those, so the overwhelming majority, were positive blood cultures. And only 12, or 12 kids and 12% were positive CSF. Okay, so that's like 0.1%. No, it's much less than that. It's like 0.01%, really low rate. Only three kids that were initially discharged were subsequently found to have an invasive bacterial infection on the follow-up. So that's like theory that bounce back rate. Only three of them. And all three of them, when they came back, were still well appearing. So it's not like they, you know, came back in status epileptics with melting brains and all that kind of stuff. This is important. They next conducted this nested case control study. And the main point of this was to determine the proportion of kids who were non-toxic appearing but had invasive bacterial infection. So in this sub-study, they did a very detailed chart review of those 101 cases that had the invasive bacterial infection, and they matched them with three controls each, so another 300 kids, that did not have an invasive bacterial infection but were matched by exact day of aliveness and uh, site. In this review, they found that 26 of those 101 kids with invasive bacterial infection were actually ill-appearing, right? So that changes sort of the perspective of like, well, what's the risk in a non-ill-appearing child? The kids with invasive bacterial infection were more likely than the other ones to be ill-appearing. Also, there were a number of those kids that had invasive, of that 101 kids that had invasive bacterial infection that had a prior history of chronic illness. They didn't have a history of chronic illness when they looked at like the ICD-9 chart review, but when they got into the detailed methods, the physician noted patient has a history of something important, et cetera, et cetera. So that number further reduced the true estimate of the incidence of invasive bacterial infection in this cohort. Ultimately, using this case control study, they re-estimated the rate for invasive bacterial infection among well-appearing children with no chronic medical history to be 0.3%. So it dropped from 0.45, it dropped by about a third compared with the initial estimate. There's a lot in this paper about all sorts of other things. Like you mentioned earlier, it's Annals of Emergency Medicine, so there's a lot of analysis. They tell us what the organisms were in the, that group, and you know, there's no real surprise. It's E. coli, then it's group B strep, and then staph aureus, and that accounts for like 80%, and then it's a few random weird things, that some of which I'd never heard of before. The other point they make was that there was a lot of variation site to site with respect to testing. One site got blood cultures on 50% of these kids, another site 14% of the kids. That's all just sort of interesting. I think the key point is that a rate of less than 0.5% and maybe down to 0.3% of invasive bacterial infection is just important to know. Most previous estimates of invasive bacterial infection in this age group have been more like 2% which is low, but still might justify a more aggressive blood culture strategy, blood culture, et cetera, workup strategy. But most of those previous studies do not have the same level of methodologic rigor that this one does. So now it is possible that some of these kids were missed, right? They were missed and then they followed up at another hospital. And so we never found out that their fever was actually due to pneumococcemia and stuff like that. So this could be an underestimate. 
I don't think that's very likely. And I think in truth, that is at least counterbalanced by what I expect to be self-selection by parents. My kid looks sick. There's a children's hospital nearby. I'm taking my sick kid to the children's hospital. When they have like a snotty nose and I need a work note, I just go to the community hospital down the street. So I think, you know, on average, children's hospitals have sicker kids. And so I think that that probably counterbalances that count, that miss rate a little bit, but I'm guessing. So I think that's true. Ultimately, the discussion really hits the point that blood culture should only be used when clinical suspicion is high, ill-appearing kids, etc., because the false positive rate creates a lot of diagnostic and treatment problems that are just generally best avoided by upstream resource containment. Editor's commentary. This is an excellent multi-site chart review study of febrile infants aged two to six months in the modern era of widespread vaccination for invasive pathogens. They found that only 0.32% of non-ill-appearing infants without previous chronic medical conditions had invasive disease, and the large majority of these were bacteremia as opposed to meningitis. Taken altogether, these findings suggest that blood cultures are not routinely warranted in this population. Abstract number 13. Percentage of heavy drinking days following psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy versus placebo in the treatment of adult patients with alcohol use disorder, a randomized clinical trial. And this is by Bogenschultz et al. from JAMA Psychiatry. So over the past decade, maybe a little more than a decade, there's been a pretty big uptick in the interest in use of psychedelics like psilocybin as treatment options for a variety of clinical conditions. In fact, I was going to say, because I feel like in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot higher interest in using psychedelics than there are now. Now everybody's into meth, but not for treatment options. (laughs) Not for treatment options. We covered a paper actually looking at this for depression in the relatively recent past. Mm -hmm. So- Alcohol use disorder represents a particularly promising target for treatment with psychedelics as there has been, I didn't know this until I read this paper, several studies published on the topic already and a meta-analysis with data from six randomized controlled trials concluding that participants with alcohol dependence treated with LSD demonstrated remission during follow-up nearly twice as often as those in comparator conditions. And I was like, well, I didn't really know about these. Maybe they're covered on EMA or something. They were not. These groundbreaking studies were published in the 1960s. That's so this is... There you go. Yeah. This is not like new knowledge. This just got like tucked away somewhere. So these authors from New Mexico and New York conduct a double-blind randomized trial recruiting patients aged 25 to 65 years via media advertisements with at least four heavy drinking days in the past month and then basically randomize them to either get psilocybin or diphenhydramine, so an active placebo, administered in two eight-hour sessions at weeks four and eight. Basically, during the session, patients were encouraged to kind of lie on a couch, wear eye masks, listen to headphones, and like listen to some music and stuff. The reason it was eight hours long is basically because they didn't want them to go somewhere after just getting, you know, psilocybin. So they just had them rest there for eight hours. That stuff lasts a while. They also got psychotherapy sessions, and in total, they were offered 12 of them. Four before the first medication session, four between the first and second medication sessions, and four in the month following their second medication session. They had a goal enrollment of 100 patients. 
But they say, like a lot of these papers, had to stop short due to COVID. They stopped in March 2020 at 95. Oh, no, I would have chucked it in so, the trash bin. So close. Participants had been alcohol dependent for a mean of 14 years. During the 12 weeks prior to screening, they consumed alcohol a mean of 75% of days, including heavy consumption on a mean of 53% of days, and heavy to them meant consuming a mean of seven drinks on a drinking day. So these were pretty heavy alcohol users. Participation in the non-medication therapy sessions was actually very high and did not differ substantially between the two groups. Basically, everybody went to all 12 sessions, the pre, the interim between the meds and the post. So probably a fairly motivated group of people. Well, they did respond. The, the recruitment yeah. was via like a media ad. Yeah. So you, you know, they wanted to, it wasn't like their doctor referred them in. Right. So there is some self-selection sure. there. And, but it's randomized, so that should balance out. That's exactly right. The percentage of heavy drinking days during the 32-week follow-up period was just under 10% for the psilocybin group versus about 25% for the diphenhydramine group, with a mean difference of 14%. Mean daily alcohol consumption, the number of standard drinks per day, was also lower in the psilocybin group, and there were no serious adverse events among participants who received the psilocybin. This is generally a pretty well-done trial with a few limitations. They fell a little bit short of their enrollment goal. The active comparator, this is probably a bigger one, did not maintain blinding. So they did assess this. They asked the patients and the assessors, who were the people doing the psychotherapy and stuff, hey, do you think you got the psilocybin or do you got Benadryl? And their <laughs> like... guess rate was 100%. <laughs> Everybody who got the psilocybin knew it. So that definitely could introduce and that's bias. True of the other fl- the the people who got Benadryl, Benadryl knew it. Knew, it, knew they didn't. They're like, this I've had this before. Yeah. Cotton mouth is not psilocybin. Got so it. they they definitely they knew what arm they were in. That introduces some bias, which is important because the outcomes are all self-reported here. Right. They're self-reported drinking days. So I think it's you know this is obviously not something you're going to do in the emergency department, but it's worth knowing about this as this gets expanded out to more and more conditions. You may see more patients coming in who are taking, you know, psychedelics or psilocybin in a therapeutic fashion. It may even pop up on a tox screen or right. something. You're like, well, what is well, this? And you know? they may be so, self-medicating with it. I mean, this is like, you know, presumably they were watched for that eight hours so that they weren't all high on psilocybin when they took out. But but if they if they liked it, you know, or, they, or worked or great whatever, point. They this we may see some uptick in So I think you're use. gonna see an uptick where you practice. Hopefully, a lot of it is going to be for therapeutic Counterbalanced purposes. Counterbalanced by less uh, drunk driving accidents, so that'd be good. That's a win-win. <laughs> Absolutely. Editor's commentary. There has been a resurgence in the use of psychedelics for clinical purposes, and in this randomized trial, the authors found a robust and sustained decrease in alcohol use among heavy drinkers with psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. We need to be aware of this trend in the house of medicine, not just for global interest, but because we may be seeing patients coming to the emergency department receiving medical psychedelics for therapeutic purposes. Quick take. Abstract number 14, and this is a quick take. Yield of head computed tomography examinations for common psychiatric presentations and implications for medical clearance from a six-year analysis of acute hospital visits. This is by two et al. 
And this is in JAMA Internal Medicine. So CT scans are frequently performed for patients with psychotic symptoms, particularly for first episode psychotic patients or patients who don't have clearly documented history of psychosis. This study looked at all the head CTs in the Yale medical system that were performed for a psychiatric complaint defined as psychosis, delusion, suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, paranoia, and or catatonia over a six-year period. They identified, and this is a little bit strange to me, but they identified 540 cases only and conducted a chart review, which eliminated an additional 100-odd cases because those patients in their chart review had documented concurrent medical indications for CT scan. So that maybe they got beaten up or something like that. So that left 369 cases that had only psychiatric symptoms as the indication for CT scan. The head CT yield for those cases was zero cases that required an acute intervention. You go, well, acute intervention, but what if they had a brain tumor that explained their you know, crazy behavior and stuff like that? And zero explanations for the symptoms. The yield was zero, take away zero. Yeah. So the authors end up sort of being, I'm going to just say, pretty against CT scanning these folks. Please note, this is a brief research report. And the methodology whereby they decided the person had concurrent medical complaints and should therefore be excluded was not described at all. And that could have biased the results downward. Like, for, say, for example, a patient had, you know, sort of bizarre behavior and altered mental status documented, which frequently happens, right? Would that person be like, oh, they have a concurrent medical complaint because they said altered mental status? That might, you know, maybe that person had a brain tumor and that would have, you know, done something like and that. They, I'm sure they didn't, but I'll ask it anyway. They didn't provide the positive rate in that group, right? No, they, they didn't. Because if that was zero too, right, now that, that's cooking a, with gas. That's a, that's a fair point. Although, you know, at some point people do have positive CT scans. So you, and they acknowledge like, you know, you, you got to scan some people. That's not the point. The point is, it's like really, really low yield for these people with primary psychotic things. Further, I think this is important. The general problem I think that we have out there is this first episode psychosis and this issue of like, you know, not known psychosis. We, I, I see this all the time, right? Somebody comes in, brought in by police off the street. For all the world, they look like they've got had psychosis before, like they, they're living on the street, they're, they're very disheveled, young, all that kind of stuff, but you don't have any documentation that they had it. Like in those kind of cases, either first episode or someone where you really suspect they have psychosis, but you can't like definitively prove it because of a lack of alignment of medical records. In that case, you know, what's the yield? And that's just not assessed at all here. They just have all psychosis. And obviously, if it's the 15th time they've come in with psychosis, they shouldn't be getting a head scan. So, you know, I think there's some questions about this. For what it's worth, there was a meta-analysis that the authors cite from a few years ago that showed a yield for first episode psychosis of 0.4%. But that one was, they sort of say, hey, even that we think is too high because they didn't explicitly exclude people who had concurrent medical complaints. So, First episode of psychosis, but also had a fever. First episode, but had a big lump on their head, you know, et cetera. For me, I still tend to believe these results that it's close to zero and I just won't do it. I just will not do a CT scan for first episode psychosis or when it's not known to be, you know, if I suspect that it's primary psychosis and people say to me all the time, well, you know, what if psych doesn't accept them and stuff like that? And to be honest, I've never had that. I just tell them I'm not doing it and the med patient's medically cleared. I can't justify 
exposing them to radiation, having to sedate them to get them into a head scan, and then they thrash about, and then you have to get a repeat head scan because there's artifacts and all that stuff. So I just don't do it. And I put my foot down. I occupy a place of power in my institution. So maybe that's not what everybody can do. But I think that this is starting to help make the case that we just shouldn't be doing this stuff. Editor's commentary. This brief research report found the diagnostic yield for CT scan in patients with isolated psychiatric symptoms and no concurrent medical complaints to be 0%. Quick take. Abstract number 15. Amoxicillin versus other antibiotic agents for the treatment of acute otitis media in children by Frost et al. from the Journal of Pediatrics. Acute otitis media is the most common reason for prescribing antibiotics in kids and affects 60% of children by three years of age. But due in part to the widespread pneumococcal vaccination, the pathogens responsible for acute otitis media have changed. And the value of immediate antibiotics for all covers, right? Anybody who comes in, any kid who comes in with ear infection has recently been brought into a lot of question with a lot of scrutiny about it, actually. But on the flip side, Because we're saying pneumococcal vaccination has changed the pathogens, there might now be more beta-lactamase-producing organisms responsible, rendering some cases non-susceptible to amoxicillin, then bringing the first line into treatment. These authors conduct a one-year retrospective cohort study using a national claims database to compare antibiotic treatment failure and recurrence rates between amox and broad-spectrum antibiotics for children 6 months to 12 years of age with acute, uncomplicated otitis media in typical clinical practice environments. So this wasn't just the ED. This was, you know, primary care offices and a bunch of stuff. The primary exposure was the antibiotic agent, and the primary outcomes were treatment failure and recurrence. So among just over a million kids included in the analysis, 56% were prescribed amoxicillin, 13% Augmentin, 20% ceftonir, and about 10% azithromycin. The primary outcome was seen in 5.5% of children. Treatment failure in 2.2% and recurrence in 3.3%, making up that 5.5%. This is low across all antibiotic types, and in their adjusted model was actually a little bit higher for broad-spectrum antibiotics but likely this is due to confounders. Maybe that's why the kid got broad-spectrum antibiotics in the first place. Another interesting finding, at least for me, was that 93% of kids who got the antibiotics were given antibiotics for greater than or equal to 10 days duration, which is a pretty long course of antibiotics for otitis media and doesn't really follow best practice guidelines. Now, It's hard to know if their very low failure rate observed is due to actual resistance patterns or due to the really loose criteria for being included in this cohort in the first place, which is just they got an ICD, you know, diagnosis of acute otitis media and may not have had acute otitis media in the first place. Or, you know, they were just viral, like a viral otitis media with no fever. There's no way to know how many of these kids were sent home with antibiotics that were not filled. And like Mike is saying about the fever, there's no description of clinical characteristics that might add what I think is some needed depth and clarity to their findings. Right. So you're telling me that 
despite the fact that there's a higher prevalence of resistant organisms and problematic thing, we're not failing. And the big take home should be like, you probably shouldn't be giving antibiotics at all. We've been through that or doing wait and see. But if you are going to use them, don't freak out that you read some antibiogram that said that, you know, the bacteria in otitis media are like resistant. They need, you know, augmented now. Yeah, you probably shouldn't freak out. But if your local hospital antibiogram says something very specific for kids with acute otitis media, I'd be more inclined to follow it, but they're just that isn't the case that right. often, right? You're kind right. of going on like your well, gut. I, by so, local antibiogram, I mean, you know, you read something that's like eh, high prevalence. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, those are going to be proven. I wouldn't read the, wouldn't read the EM weekly yeah. and change it based on that. I think is what you're saying, and yeah. I totally agree. Editor's commentary. Using nationwide claims data, the authors report low failure and recurrence rates for children with acute otitis media across all antibiotic types, but my suspicion is that their rates may be artificially low due to a very loose inclusion criteria for the cohort. We should be aware that wait-and-see prescriptions are an option in many cases of non-severe acute otitis media, and if you decide to give antibiotics, you can use amoxicillin unless the patient has high-risk features, including receiving amoxicillin in the last 30 days, or if your local antibiotogram says something specifically different. Abstract number 16, Feasibility of Emergency Department-Based Fentanyl Test Strip Distribution by Lima et al. in the Journal of Addiction Medicine. The opioid crisis is more out of control now than ever, which is like really hard to believe. It's actually hard to even fathom the numbers, the magnitude. In 2020, which is the latest year for which CDC has death data available, 68,000 opioid deaths occurred in the United States. It's just, it's every year it's climbing. You know, a few years ago when I was more active in the research space, it was more like 40,000, which seemed like an incredible number. And now it's just going up and up and up. The majority of the deaths now involve some synthetic opioid usually a fentanyl derivative, which the user may not recognize is in the product that they're taking. The original strategy of reducing the number of opioid pills in the ED is just not adequate, which we've actually done. You know, that's like the number of pills being dispensed in the ED has gone down. It was never very high, but it's been dropped dramatically. It's had zero impact on, you know, this crescendoing epidemic. So most forward-thinking ED specialists and addiction medicine specialists are fully embracing harm reduction strategies, right? And that's basically that we know they're going to use. So how do we make them not die of using? And that most commonly involves pushing sort of buprenorphine, naloxone, or suboxone combos for people who inject opioids. But there are a lot of barriers to doing that. Most notably that it requires providers to prescribe it, which providers are often not willing to do, and it requires patients to take it which they are often not willing to do. So those two tastes, taste great together. Oh, you don't want it? I don't want to do it? Great. So we just won't do anything. So what else can we offer if nobody's willing to do that? Or if you're willing to do that, what else can we offer that further harm reduces? And the one that's taken off recently or, you know, the last few years has been take-home naloxone kits, which, you know, take-home naloxone kits should be like everywhere, like oxygen or gravity or clinical depression. <laughs> No. How long did it take you to come up with that? <laughs> about f- four seconds. <laughs> that, that felt about right. Do you, know, do you know what that's from? I don't think you know this movie. That's just a weird thing. 
No. It's pop star. Oh, it's pop Andy Samberg or whatever Andy it is. Samberg, yeah. I have not seen it. Because it's great. It's great. But yeah, anyway, the take home naloxone really should just be everywhere, you know? And so, you know, a lot of EDs are starting to do that and give little care packets for people who've had opioid-related things or getting prescribed opioids, and that's fantastic. But the new kid on the block here is these fentanyl test strips. The notion is that, you know, you give these test strips to drug users so that they don't unwittingly inject or ingest a compound that's laced with fentanyl or that's just primarily fentanyl. The feasibility of doing this in an ED setting has basically not been studied at all. This study examines that feasibility as part of a harm reduction package to patients in the ED with an opioid-related ED visit, most commonly an opioid overdose that was reversed. It's a really small pilot study. They offered the test strips to 23 people in an ED in downtown Chicago over a one-month period in August 2021. Almost all of those people, as I said earlier, had had an opioid overdose. So 23 people. 18 of the 23 agreed to take the test strip. They're like, okay, that sounds good. And they gave them take-home naloxone. I think they offered them bute, but they don't really get into that. So 18 of the 23 agreed to take the test strip. Hysterically, they report that two of them left the test strip, and then they put like in parentheses, along with the rest of the care package at the bedside when they took off. So, you know, not surprised. Hey, that's not bad. Two patients who had an opioid overdose, like left their stuff and were like, F you, I'm out of here. That's, you guys are doing a great job. So that left 16 patients who the authors tried to contact to determine like, if they'd found any value in having these take-home strips. This will not come as a huge surprise, but they were not able to identify or find the majority of these people after one month. They called everybody and like, most of the phones were disconnected and stuff like that. Ultimately, only got a hold of three, right? three out of the 16. Interestingly, all three of them had used the test strips. And all three of the test strips had returned positive for fentanyl, even though the substances that they were looking at were cocaine, Xanax, and heroin. All three had positive things. And importantly, all three of the people who did that changed their behavior on the basis of having this. Two of the people were like, oh, I don't want to take that Xanax that has fentanyl in it, right? They actually don't tell us which ones did what, but I have a feeling because two of them threw away the drugs and one of them used the drugs anyway but kept their take-home naloxone kit nearby with a friend. So they were like, okay, it may be risky, but I'm going to do it. And I think they said they also have their dose or something like that. So interestingly, one of the people really liked it. You know, it sounded like everybody made some behavior changes. One of them really liked it and said, hey, I am not from Illinois. I'm from, I don't know where. They didn't specify that. And they said, can I get some of these take-home? How do, how do I get more of these so that I can use them wherever I am? But then in researching it, they discovered that it's illegal to have fentanyl test strips in whatever state they were actually from because it's considered drug paraphernalia. And so they said, you know, probably maybe not the best idea to have them, even though you might not die, but you'll end up in prison. And that's, you know, a little bit of a counterbalancing force. So I think this study shows that there's some promise as the, you know, these really vulnerable people need something and at least some fraction of them we're willing to take home and use the kits. Now, we don't know what happened to those other folks and stuff like that, but you know, it's some fraction. This must be as useful as antibiotics for otitis media, right? So I think that even though it's a small fraction, it's, it's, you know, they made the behavior change, so that's great. There's lots of issues remain. 
are the test strips sufficiently sensitive to pick up all these fentanyl derivatives? Because it's not all just pure fentanyl. It's fent- car fentanyl and you know various different, I'm not a toxicologist, but there are other derivatives. And the answer is no. We know that there are derivatives that this doesn't pick up, the usual test strip doesn't pick up. And so could that actually be giving people a false sense of security? And that could be an issue. The other one that really comes to mind for me is who's the right candidate? I've been talking to people lately, you know, people who use drugs in the ED about fentanyl, and they all know that there's fentanyl in the drugs now. Everybody who's using street drugs routinely, commonly is like, yep, there's fentanyl in it, you know. What am I supposed to do? That's, that's, I like to use these, these types of drugs. So heavy drug users might not be the right population. They, you know, what's the point? I already know there's fentanyl in here. I'm going to use anyway, unless it were quantitative, which you know, that's a whole separate conversation. On the other hand, people who might unwittingly use one of those Xanaxes that has a lot of fentanyl in it and could die from a one-pill overdose, who, if they knew, wouldn't do it, that's probably a much more casual you know, sort of drug user, uh, you know, Friday night, whatever, with my friends kind of drug user. And they're very unlikely to meet this sort of like ED criteria for getting this fentanyl test strip. And they're probably not likely to use it or know how to use it or anything like that. So there are a lot of questions here that, you know, that need to be answered. It's hard work and it's a lot of work that needs to be done. But I think the basic principle that, you know, people who use drugs should have some idea about the drugs they're using, particularly if there's a known highly lethal substance in them. And if we can give people stuff like that, I mean, you know, I think we probably should, knowing that we have to work out some of the legal questions so we're not actually putting people at risk for winding up in prison. But I think it's a really interesting addition to that harm reduction toolkit and one that I'm very interested to see, you know, um, the adoption and play out. Editor's commentary. This is a very early feasibility study that looked at giving fentanyl test strips to ED patients who had an opioid-related visit. The majority of patients accepted the test strips. Of the few who were able to be contacted, all of them used the test strips and altered their behavior based on the results. The study suggests there may be some use in making these available to high-risk ED populations, but many legal and practical questions persist. Quick take. Abstract number 17. Polypill strategy in secondary cardiovascular prevention by Castellano et al. from the New England Journal of Medicine. A quick take. The use of the polypill, which is basically combining several different meds into one pill, is not new in the house of medicine, nor is it new in the realm of cardiovascular outcomes as there were several large trials over the past few years showing improved outcomes when they used them for primary prevention. In this phase 3 open-label randomized controlled trial, seeing if a similar benefit exists in secondary prevention among older patients who've had an MI, so they had a recent MI within the last six months, does this polypill have any value? So this is the secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease in the elderly, the SECURE trial, from 113 centers across Spain, Italy, France, Germany, Poland, and the Czech Republic and Hungary, where they randomized 2,500 patients who were either age greater than or equal to 75 or age greater than or equal to 65 with one cardiovascular risk factor to a polypill containing 100 milligrams of aspirin, ramipril, 
at one of three different doses and atorvastatin at one of two different doses, 20 or 40 milligrams. You could kind of, you know, the polypill could have different doses of the different things in it. Or to usual care, which was just following their European society guidelines and followed patients out for a median of 36 months. Their primary outcome, which was a composite outcome of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI or ischemic stroke, or urgent revascularization occurred in 9.5% of the polypill group versus 12.7% of the usual care group, which was a statistically significant difference. Self-reported medication adherence was higher in the polypill group at 24 months, 75% approximately versus 63%, and adverse events were similar across the two groups. Interestingly, when they checked actual blood pressure and LDL cholesterol and things like that, there was no differences across the group. So like from a health perspective, it seemed like they looked kind of similar, but from an outcome perspective, they did a little bit better. So I think it's just interesting to know that these sort of poly pills are out there coming and they may be coming for more stuff. Yeah, I got to say, I don't think I've, I mean, maybe they're not formulary where we are. I've never seen anyone on one of these poly pills. And I will say that there's a history of poly pills in, in cardiovascular literature, which has been pretty sort of cynical, right? Like it's another way to get a patent and take a bunch of generic medications and put them into one pill and then claim that you've made some new thing that, you know, now it costs eight times as much and things like that. I'm not sure if that's what's going on yeah, here. It, the authors actually have a bit, I didn't get into that because this is a quick take, but the authors have like a really big section about that, how mm-hmm. like the community acceptability of these things is kind of low because the price does go through the roof. So it really does sort of take like a village to yeah. say like, okay, this is, you know, this is so much better for you that yeah. it's worth you going bankrupt over. It's not quite bankrupt. But it's, you know, that is a big, the big barrier to widespread use of this is the increased cost from a quote unquote new pill. Editor's commentary. In this large multinational trial, the authors report that use of a polypill containing aspirin and medications for blood pressure and cholesterol reduced adverse cardiovascular outcomes among elderly patients who had suffered a recent heart attack but did not impact mortality. The concept is clearly very interesting, and the suggestion that adherence was increased makes sense as a mechanism, but we need to understand how the cost of this pill affects things relative to the medications being taken individually and how that's going to impact uptake. It's a cool idea, and because it's cool, something tells me that this concept of the one pill to rule them all might pop up for other conditions soon. Quick take. Abstract number 18. This is a quick take. Efficacy and safety of an extravascular implantable cardioverter defibrillator. This is by Friedman et al. And it's also in the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay. Basically, this is a new device. It's an extravascular AICD. That's not external. It's just extravascular. The idea is that many people get an AICD for the defibrillation part and maybe some temporary pacing, if like really temporary, but not like, you know, years of pacing or brief overdrive pacing. If they start to go into VTAC, you get like the overdrive pacing to try to terminate that. There are extravascular ICDs that place the lead under the skin, right? That exists already. These ones that the machine is placed under the skin and the lead is placed under the skin. but this older type of extravascular ICD 
can only deliver shocks for defibrillation. Can't do the pacing part. And the reason is the lead is just too far away from the heart. So you need to give a big old shock and it can't really detect some of the more subtle things or can't deliver. They talk about it actually, like they could do pacing, but it's such a high voltage that's required for capture that patients are like hated, it's uncomfortable, et cetera. They won't do it. In addition, the battery's too big because the voltages need to be high. So the, you know, it's like carrying around like a briefcase in your chest wall. So a new Medtronic device has come out and it's a little bit different. It's an extravascular device. So it doesn't go through the you know, veins into the heart muscle itself. And the electrode sits along the parasternal line, but substernally. So you, ha- you actually need to get into the chest to implant the electrode. It's implanted in EP labs by specially trained cardiologists, not by cardiothoracic surgeons. I guess they just sort of slide it in there and then, you know, whatever, it works. Because of its closer location to the heart, it can detect VF and can deliver the shock, but it can also provide temporary pacing and that anti-tachycardic overdrive pacing. So all of those things being desirable. This study looked at how well this new device terminated VF in patients who were undergoing implantation and how they fared after six months. So basically, as they were putting the device in, they induced VF in the 302 patients and, were, and used the device to shock them out of it. And that's normal, apparently. When you put an AICD in, you kind of tickle it until they get VF so that you know if you can stop it and what voltage to program it to that will terminate the VF. So what happened? VF was successfully terminated 98.7% of the time, which is higher than the performance goal. They said, you know, to be successful, it would have to do at least 88%. It was 98%. The mean voltage required was 15 joules, which is actually similar to the intravascular devices. So the, you know, it didn't require these massive shocks or anything like that. They then followed the patients for six months to identify device-related complications. And basically, complications were rare, usually involved like maybe a lead dislodgement, and occurred at a rate pretty similar to newly implanted intravascular AICDs. There were 18 events during that six-month follow-up that required a shock, and the machine converted all 18 of them, usually on the first shock. Anti-tachycardic pacing for VTAC happened in some number of cases, and the machine did that anti-tachycardic pacing and terminated the VTAC 50% of the time, which they said is actually a pretty good rate. It didn't terminate the other 50%, and those patients didn't die. They either self-terminated or they degenerated into you know something else, and then they got a real shock, and then they were fine. Bottom line, this device worked, and now it's you know headed towards FDA approval, and there, there's a lot of stuff, and markets are in, excited about it and cardiologists probably like make a lot of money to insert them. So I expect that we'll probably see these a little more commonly for selected cases. So that's the main thing to know. For us, practically, it does all the same stuff, right? So, you know, if someone's like, oh, I got an extravascular AICD, you know, or I, you know, whatever, it's not going to look that different. The machine is about the same size now as a normal one. It's usually put in the anterior axillary line instead of that little pocket up in the chest because it doesn't need to access the vasculature up there. So that's why it's not up there. The only thing that I think is particularly relevant for us is that it looks weird on x-ray. It looks like a bendy straw, you know, like a kid's bendy straw that goes back and forth a few times. 
And so it's a thick wire. It's not a little tiny, little teeny wire that you're used to seeing with these things. So if you get in somebody and get an x-ray and you're like, what the hell is that? Because I never see anything that looks like it before. A metal bendy straw along their parasternal line. That's what this is. Editor's commentary. This large multinational registry study shows that an extravascular defibrillator with substernal lead can effectively defibrillate and provide overdrive and pause-preventing pacing. The device is new and looks a little different than traditional intravascular devices on x-ray, so beware as it may be coming to an ED near you soon. House of Medicine Abstract number 19. Association of the Weekend Warrior and Other Leisure Time Physical Activity Patterns with All-Cause and Cause-Specific Mortality in Nationwide Cohort Study, and this is by Dos Santos et al. from JAMA Internal Medicine. Working out is hard. Let's just start there. Let's be honest, but it's good for us, so everybody's supposed to be doing it. But what should a goal be? So the World Health Organization guidelines recommend that adults perform between 150 to 300 minutes per week of moderate intensity aerobic physical activity or 75 to 150 minutes per week of vigorous intensity aerobic physical activity or some combination of the two of those things. And there is evidence that these levels of activity can impact all-cause mortality. And this is what makes this study pretty cool. Okay, they're like, you should be exercising for, you know, three hours a week on average, three, four hours, something like that. But it's not really known if the same amount of physical activity, so doing those four hours a week, spread out over just a couple of days or spread out over the whole week provides the same level of health benefit. So is it better to do 30 minutes a day or just on the weekend, you're like, I'm going to hit it hard. This is when I'm off. I'm going to work out, I'm going to go do a class, I'm going to go rock climbing, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff on the weekends, and is that good enough? So this is a prospective cohort study using data from the U.S. National Health Interview Survey, a nationally representative survey in the U.S. conducted annually by the CDC, and they have data here from 350,000 adults collected between 1997 to 2013, because they need to have enough time lapse to be able to look at some of these outcomes, after excluding patients with cancer, chronic bronchitis, emphysema, heart disease, and stroke, and they say they do this to avoid reverse causation bias, those with missing physical activity data, and those who are unable to perform moderate physical activity. And then basically, they classified them according to the level of their activity and then the pattern of their activity. So first, they classified them into a physically inactive group, okay, which they defined as below that minimum World Health Organization benchmark. So less than 150 minutes per week of activity. Okay, so that's going to be your control. That's your control. Or physically active which is more than 150 minutes per week of moderate or more than 75 minutes per week of vigorous activity. And then the active group was further divided into the weekend warrior, which was one to two sessions per week, or regularly active, which was greater than or equal to three sessions per week. Mean age, 41 years, 50% women, 68% non-Hispanic white, and they had a median follow-up of just over 10 years. 
So the median physical activity was 240 minutes a week in the weekend warrior group among the active people versus 420 minutes per week in the regularly active group. Their study... That's a lot of minutes. If you're really... But that's they include like some pretty modest activity. This was all self-reported, right? No, but I mean, it's like they don't... It's 420 minutes, but that could be moderate physical activity. Not, that doesn't mean you're, uh, you know, running marathon. I mean, that's a lot of time, dude. It's that's like a eight lot, hours. It's a lot of time. <laughs> so in their study focus and main finding, compared with physically inactive participants, multivariable adjusted hazard ratios for all cause mortality were 0.92 for weekend warriors and 0.85 for regularly active participants. So both groups were lower than that control of physically inactive patients. In secondary findings, given the same amount of total activity, so if we, you know, sort of even the groups out, weekend warriors and regularly active participants had similar all-cause and cause-specific mortality rates, and there was something of a dose response within the regularly active group where longer durations of sessions, so greater than 60 minutes, and a higher intensity of physical activity had lower all-cause and cause-specific mortality rates. Further, some vigorous activity, in addition to moderate, was also associated with lower mortality. Now, limitations worth noting here, this is self-reported information as opposed to some kind of automated collection like wearing your Fitbit or your Apple Watch sending in some data to this centralized hub. And it seems to me like the physical activity data was collected at one point in time when you got into this survey. So you weren't allowed to change or cross over or something like that. And thirdly, the inactive group, how they define inactive, still could have had two hours of activity per week, which is not that inactive. You know, I don't know if that's the same as having zero, zero like exactly zero. So I think generally speaking, this is really not so much applicable to our patients. They're not coming to us asking for advice on exercise patterns. Maybe they're going to their primary doctor, but it's more applicable to us as humans who are <laughs> as busy. As who like have yeah. to do you know, You've stuff. got a lot of shifts and you're working a night shift and you don't feel like working out. And you know you're supposed to be doing you know, three hours a week it's of exercise. regular schedules when you're in Is general. it okay to be a weekend warrior or do you have to push yourself to work out after that night shift? And they're saying here it's okay to be a weekend warrior and I like it. Editor's commentary. Using a nationwide data set, these authors conclude that being active decreased all-cause and disease-specific mortality rates in a relatively dose-dependent fashion, and in a novel finding suggests that after adjusting for potential confounders, the total amount of activity performed, spreading it out over more days or concentrating it into fewer days may not influence mortality outcomes. Being a weekend warrior is not only fun and easier to schedule in, but also confers health benefits as long as it is real exercise. Abstract number 20, association of artificial intelligence-aided chest radiograph interpretation with reader performance and efficiency by An et al. and JAMA Network Open. This is an industry-sponsored study looking at how an AI algorithm, when used in conjunction with usual clinical interpretation, affects radiology read accuracy. All right, specifically in this study, the authors looked at a commercially available AI product, something called like Lucid or Lumen or something like that. Lumen? It's not Lumen. <laughs> it's 
That's that's a severance reference <laughs> right is. there, my I, friend. I just I I yes it is, but that's not accurate. I wish it was. <laughs> Maybe now we know lucid. what they're working on down yeah, in that basement. The, that would make sense, actually. But in those numbers, the <laughs> yeah. boxes. Yeah, they're doing radiology interpretation. Severance, just go watch it. It's yeah. a good show. Good show. Good show. Good time. The product is interesting in that it looks at x-rays and it gives an interpretation, but it has a variety of display formats that basically highlight the areas of concern. So when you look at it, they have pictures of it, right? And, and you can do it with like a heat map or a little color-coded or gray or whatever. But essentially, you know how we always talk about when you're watching a radiology talk, you know, there's like positive arrow sign. That's what this does. It doesn't just say pneumonia. It has like a, a shaded out area and it says with an arrow, I think this is pneumonia, right? So it's actually quite cool. You know, just sort of the visual display is quite cool. Radiologists of various levels of training interpreted x-rays that had already been interpreted by multiple senior radiologists to determine what they called the ground truth or the gold standard. The radiologists were randomized and crossed over to interpretation with and without the AI sort of piece to it after a four-week washout period. They tried in this study to recreate actual reading room pressures. That's a, they did it in the reading room. They had a volume of x-rays that's like consistent with like what would be going on in a normal reading process, you know, like 30 x-rays to read in an hour or what, you know, whatever it is. And the tool that they used to record the findings was also like a usual reading room thing. Because one of the criticisms of previous AI work is that, well, these radiologists are sitting there knowing it's a research study, taking as long as they want, and it just doesn't create the real world environment. So they tried to simulate that a little bit more, but to be clear, this was not a real-world environment. This was still a simulated environment. Anyway, it's quite important to note that the radiologists and the AI were only assessed on four clinical findings. Pulmonary nodule, pneumonia, pleural effusion, and pneumothorax. Even though other pathology could have been present, they were only judged. And the radiologists actually were asked to fill out their form for all of those things. They just didn't assess their accuracy for all of those things. Maybe that's their gold standard and didn't do that. I don't know what. They interpreted just over 500 films. Overall, AI alone was very, very sensitive, like depending on the condition between 82 and 98% sensitive, which was actually much higher than the radiologists when they did it alone. And they were sensitive in the 65 to 80% range. But the AI suffered from a lack of specificity. Some of the conditions, the specificity was down in the low 70% compared to the radiologists where their specificity was in the 90s across all of the, the different- so the, so the AI is overcalling a it little bit. It was highly sensitive, but had non-specificity. Interestingly, when they combine the AI with the radiologist, so you give the radiologist and you have him, he sees or she the, sees- The second the, set the, of eyes. The second set of- It's actually, I'm going to coin a term right now, and it's called augmented- radiology, right? It's like, you know, that augmented reality, not quite ver That's what it is, right? It's like highlighting it and saying, do you think this is a pneumonia? That kind of thing. When they had that thing, they saw a sharp bump in sensitivity from the radiologists in this augmented environment. And very interestingly, no drop off at all in specificity. So this suggests that the AI was good at highlighting things that the radiologists might've missed, but the radiologist was very good at blowing them off if they were wrong. 
right? It wasn't like they were just like, oh, no, 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 good, good call. It's all that will just become like the AI. So that's kind of interesting. The other note was that the AI seemed to help the resident and fellows more than the attending radiologists. Although that's not, they didn't do a lot of statistical manipulation, just the raw numbers look that way. So, you know, I always say that if you really want to reduce medical errors, have another doctor do a repeat HMP at the same time and you just discuss it between the two of you. You'll miss a lot less. It just takes a long time and it costs a fortune. So maybe this AI is that second concurrent opinion, you know, and that's a, a very interesting way of thinking about it as opposed to thinking of it as supplanting or superseding your initial judgment. This x-ray application is potentially really interesting for emergency medicine where we often rely on our interpretation without radiology help after hours or whatever. And I'd happily take AI help, especially for things like, you know, nodules that I'm supposed to tell the patient about, but that I'm not even looking for. If the AI sort of put a little blue shed around it, put an arrow and said, hey, do you think that's a nodule? I'd be happy to tell the patient, yeah, I think you might have a nodule. I don't know, you know, go, go follow up with the final read and follow up with your doctor, you know, to make sure that this gets, gets dealt with. One other thing I, I think, frankly, I'd point out is that I actually think this study was a little stacked against the AI, and I don't know why they did that. It's a manufacturer-sponsored study, mostly because the chest x-rays that they looked at, very few of them had multiple pathologies, right? And that's something that the AI should be good at, right? Like, oh, you know, we, our mind goes, we see that pleural effusion on the right where the patient has the indication is right-sided chest pain, and we miss the tiny pneumothorax that's concurrently on the left, whereas the AI, at least in theory, shouldn't suffer from that same human frailty, right? They should be able to scan all through the image and, you know, identify it. And so, you know, I think that if they had images that had more of that type of stuff, the AI would actually probably augment the radiologist interpretation more, but they didn't do that. So what can I say? There's still a lot of work to do, you know, but I like this thread of AI sort of like I said, augmenting the clinical impression as opposed to sort of putting it as a side-by-side, which one is better, you know, because I think that offers sort of a more clinically acceptable integration of this type of technology into workflows. And, and I don't just mean by like doctors clinically acceptable, but like to patients too. Like there's a, something very unsettling about the idea of like, I don't know, I put your symptoms into the computer, it told me what it is, this is what it is. So, I, you know, anyway, I just, you know, I'm into this AI thing. I'm curious to see how it matures. And I think this is another step in its sort of maturation process, not ready for prime time, but pretty cool. And, but I do think it's very cool that we finally know what's going on in macro data and refinement <laughs> in that Lumen building. So go watch Severance. Editor's commentary. This is another study demonstrating some value to AI-informed interpretation of chest x-ray. The results are consistently positive across multiple studies, and we can expect more and more of this type of technology to enter our clinical space. Quick take. Abstract number 21, Gamification of Graduate Medical Education in Emergency Medicine Residency Program by Gu et al. from the International Journal of Emergency Medicine. This one is a quick take. Gamification is, as they say in the paper, the use of game design elements in non-game contexts or the crafting or delivering all the fun and addictive elements found in games and applying them to real-world or productive activities. 
I think this is a pretty common trend. Generally, look at the world around us and you see this all over the place, you know, like get your reward card punched and get something. It's like even something as simple. That's all gamification. And the authors acknowledge that. I think the traditional one is the Monopoly McDonald's thing, right? That's yeah. gamifying eating fast food, so, <laughs> which didn't have enough positive pressure yeah. behind then it. Then now you got to get those things to <laughs> put on your board. It's been there for a long time. And the authors here acknowledge that in emergency medicine residencies, this is kind of already being done on sort of a small level. Things like EM Jeopardy, you yeah. know, like having a Jeopardy board up there and some quizzes. But they propose a more novel approach of developing a long term, extending just under a year, to develop team building and competition in their 18 person community residency. And this thing is called East EM Wars. Unfortunately, they don't really describe what they did, other than saying there were no changes made to the methods of the content delivery, which I find kind of strange, other than adding, quote, gamification elements. So all 18 of their residents participated, and they sort of just present pre and post data showing that 72% of respondents report increased motivation and engagement, 55 report increased sense of challenge, and they say that these are statistically significant differences when you compare the pre and the post, and then also report high satisfaction and include positive quotes from their qualitative assessment. So Mikey liked it. What's funny, it's very much a Mikey liked it. But then they're like, let's look at their in-service exam scores. It went down by 30 points. (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) So the in-service exam scores of the ones that reported it, almost half and half went up versus down. You know, there's some pretty major issues with this paper, which is why it's a quick take. The first one being, I think, very common to medical education research that Surveying your own residents generates a very high risk of bias in the responses because they, even if you say it's anonymous, they're like, my PD is going to know if I said I like this huge effort that they put into our program yeah, Sure, or not. five out of five. Yeah. So everyone's going to give it a five out of five. And the second being that even if they like it, we have no clue if it actually works, that is to say, if the transfer of knowledge is better, if retention is better. Not working a lot of hours, you know, having a lot of fun time, going out and chilling. That's all, everybody likes all of that stuff. It just doesn't make you a better doctor. Yeah, I would just say, you know, if you're a medical education researcher, and I know a lot of researchers listen to this as well, for things like this, where you do something small and the findings can be a little bit obvious, you asked all your own residents if this huge effort was good or not, if you did a good job as a PD, I would add some detail about like just what you did. So other researchers who are out there can at least get their wheels turning and start thinking about stuff. Like I still have no clue what their EM, I even tried to look it up online. I have no clue exactly what they did. And I think even adding that, would have at least been some contribution to the literature, might get some other med-ed researchers thinking. Editor's commentary. In this single-site pre- and post-study from a community residency program, the authors report that residents like the gamification of their program on many fronts, but these findings have high risk of bias, and there's no way to know if just because they liked it, they actually learned anything. I think this paper highlights some of the difficulties when conducting med-ed research, and I would encourage other authors of papers like this to fully explain their intervention. So if nothing else, other groups can learn, get their own wheels turning, 
replicate or improve on good ideas to start to build a real evidence base. Abstract number 22, how are patient order and shift timing associated with imaging choices in the emergency department? Evidence from Niagara Health Administrative Data, this is by Strobel et al. in Annals of Emergency Medicine. This is a meaty paper to have at the end. I think the basic idea is that you know, we kind of know we make decisions a little bit differently early and late in our shifts. Some of this has to do with being you know, sort of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at the beginning of our shifts with lots of energy to talk to people and perform exams and to try to uncover diagnoses. And some of it has to do with the opposite of that. You're worn down by the end of your shift. It's like your mind is exploding and you say, forget the history, ask uh, the radiologist, get the CT scan, what's going on. And then some of it has to do with things like that are more cultural and other pressures like the need to wind down your patients so that you have minimal signouts, et cetera. But you know, from a patient perspective, I think there's little doubt that you'd like to be treated and have the same sort of diagnostic approach, whether you, the doctor you're seeing came on to shift 30 minutes ago or seven hours ago. This is all framed in the paper under the umbrella of decision fatigue, or the notion that as you make more and more complex decisions in a row, it becomes more and more difficult, and one is more likely to tire and defer decisions to someone else, like the radiologist. The authors offer something kind of interesting. They say that decision fatigue comes in two flavors. One is called fatiguing down, right? And that's, I think, what we think of as normal decision fatigue, a process where you get more and more tired and progressively make worse decisions as the decisions stack up. But the other process is called tuning up. And that's the process where you catch your groove after some amount of time. You know, your coffee sets in, you get used to your team after, you know, an hour or two, you're nursing and everybody else, and you catch that groove and you make better decisions as time goes on and the decisions stack up. So both can be in play and they can have countervailing, you know, sort of effects. So this is actually quite difficult to study. And the authors here make a valiant effort by looking at administrative data from Ontario, Canada collected between 2013 and 2019, corresponding to about 800,000 ED visits at three EDs. The key outcomes of interest okay, were the probability of getting a radiology study, and they break it to X-ray, CT, and ultrasound, and also the bounce-back rate within seven days. So it's the probability of getting a study or the probability of bouncing back within seven days. And the key predictor of interest was the order of the patient relative to the first patient a provider saw on shift and the timing of the patient relative to the first patient they saw on shift. So for simplicity, what's the probability of getting scanned if the patient is seen in the 180th minute of a shift compared to the first minute? And what's the probability of being scanned if you're the 15th patient or the first patient, right, compared to the first patient? And this was assessed in a multivariate regression model adjusted for observable covariates like age and diagnosis and things like that. They also actually included an instrumental variable strategy to try to account for unmeasured confounders that could have biased their original model, but really didn't have an effect. So what did they find? They found a few things actually, and they're actually a little somewhat contradictory, and that's why this, this paper gets a little confusing. But overall, the x-ray rate was 36% of patients got an x-ray, CT, 15% of patients got a CT scan, and about 6% of patients got an ultrasound. 
First thing that's a key finding was that the order of the patient had a big effect on the probability of CT scanning, with the probability dropping by 10% relative to the first patient when you're at like about the 10th patient. The graphs show that this drop happens right away after the first couple of patients on a shift and peaks after about 10 to 12 patients and then just stays flat for the rest of the shift. So that's one thing. The opposite happens in terms of timing on a shift. So as the time of a shift goes on, the probability of a CT scan or x-ray or whatever goes up, but only by a little bit. Whereas the other one dropped by 10%, it goes up by maybe 2 or 3%. The same general trend was seen for x-ray and ultrasound, but the magnitude's a little smaller. Neither of these predictor variables had any impact on bounce backs. So the rate was low and it was unrelated to the timing or the patient order. So this is a little bit interesting. I'm sort of surprised that those things didn't autocorrelate timing and, um, and order, but you know they didn't. So they find that with advancing order, the probability of CT scanning goes down, but with no cost in terms of bounce back. So this suggests that tuning up process. You come into your shift and you're like, ah, I'm not, I haven't had my coffee. I'm going to scan this person with belly pain. After an hour or so goes into your shift, a couple hours, or not, I shouldn't say hours, after you've seen you know, a half dozen patients or something like that, then you're all fresh, you figured everything out, you understand how backed up radiology is, and you start being a little more parsimonious with your CT orders, and the bounce back rate doesn't increase, so that parsimoniousness doesn't come at a cost, at least in terms of bounce back. On the other hand, fatiguing down also seems to occur such that after a couple hours, two, three hours of the shift, the CT rate goes up, but again, is not associated with fewer bounce backs. And this means, according to them, that the initial low rate was good, right? You had a low CT rate, no bounce backs, you increased your CT rate, but that didn't decrease bounce backs. So, you know, that increased rate is like the unnecessary rate. Of course, this ignores a lot of cultural constraints like sign-outs and other end-of-shift pressures. And I would actually like to see this analysis done looking from the other end, like instead of from the time a shift starts until the, you know, from when a shift ended to see how those last couple hours CT rates and things change. Because I feel like that's where, you know, or maybe from both perspectives, because I feel like there's a lot of changes in my personal practice and practices that I see with, you know, colleagues, you know, where they're, when they're at the end of their shift, like, pressure to not order CT and just admit or whatever. But the main problem with this study is that I just don't think the bounce back rate is a good marker of proper care, right? And they have a lot of eggs in that basket. Basically, because the bounce back rate stays flat, the assumption that the reduction in CT was reducing unnecessary scans, that's because it stayed flat. If, that, if the bounce back rate had gone up, then that reduction would have been a bad thing and indicated poor decision making. I don't think that's necessarily so. Sure, again, if the bounce back rate had, when they dropped the CT scan, it had suddenly jumped but like crazy, that would be an indicator that that's a problematic thing to do. But bounce back rates, I think, are going to be very insensitive to that, like minor changes in uh, clinical care. And I just don't think that, you know, it's a good sign that the, the reduction of scans was either a good or bad idea. I think we need a lot more sensitive measures of quality care as opposed to the bounce back rate. And that could be all sorts of different things like patient satisfaction, 
adjudicated errors, guideline concordance, you know, was the scan necessary? Did it meet, you know, appropriateness guidelines, et cetera? And that's just not in this paper at all. So I think that that, you know, ends up leaving this a little bit flat for me, although I appreciate that they did a really, really, really nice effort. And it does at least descriptively highlight that we are doing different stuff at different times on our shifts, which is probably not something that we should be doing, at least from a patient perspective. Editor's commentary. This large clinical data set from Ontario Province in Canada demonstrates that the timing and order in which a patient is seen on a provider's shift has an independent association with the probability of getting a radiologic test, seemingly independent of other factors. More work is needed to determine if we start the shift slowly, making more conservative decisions, and settle in, making better decisions with respect to imaging as time and number of patients increase through the shift. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the December 2022 EMA Ultra Summary. I'm Jenny Beck Esme, and with me, as always, is the illustrious Jess Monis. Welcome, Jess. Hey, Jenny. So I was actually looking on Twitter the other day at this interesting thread about people talking about how we should start using December as kind of um, a pullback time, like a wind down time. Maybe don't take on new projects, maybe kind of let things slide until January and focus on your family and your friends. A former co-resident of mine, Adara Landry, who's now obviously this fabulous faculty member in her own right, was talking about this on Twitter, about how she went through her to-do list and said, anything that I haven't already started, I'm going to put in the January to-do list. And I thought that was a really good idea. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I mean. Honestly, if you said, let's do that in October or November, or just I'll do it any month, like any <laughs> month you want to put a pause, I am fine with that. Yeah, it's a great and idea. That's, that's actually a really good point because, you know, not everybody out there in the listening world is probably that focused on the various holidays that happen in December. So yeah, take a month, pause, spend it with your friends and family. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. And you know what? Take one month, take two months. Take six, take 12. I mean... <laughs> Wait, no. maybe we could just, you know what? I think what you're saying is find balance in life, right? Learn how to say uh, no, find balance in life, let it be every month. Could not have said it better myself. In fact, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we have not yet taken any time off. We are here with some really fantastic papers. So let's dive in. Paper number one. Impact of Macintosh Blade Size on Endotracheal Intubation Success in Intensive Care Units, a Retrospective Multicenter Observational Max Size ICU Study. So this paper, as you would think, is comparing the use of MAC3 and MAC4 direct laryngoscopy blades for intubating in the ICU. The authors retrospectively analyzed data from three published prospective randomized studies and one observational study with the primary outcome being first-pass success. Of the roughly 2,100 intubations, 30% were performed using a MAC-3 and 70% using a MAC-4. They found statistically different first-pass success rate between the two blades, and after some math, this left them with a number needed to treat to prevent first-attempt failure of 14.6 
in favor of the Mac 3. Overall, this is a good paper, good statistical analysis, good data collection in the trials they reviewed. But as it isn't a trial itself, we don't really know why a MAC-3 versus a MAC-4 would have been chosen or whether there were some patient characteristics that weren't identified and all that. Also, this is, of course, for intubations in the ICU and not the ED, so you have to, you know, take it with a grain of salt. It's an interesting study and one we haven't really seen done before, but we probably need a real trial before we can really prove one size is better than the other. Jess, do you have a preference? Actually... I'm a three. I'm a three, too. I'm a three as well. Yeah. Yeah. Bigger, not always better. Bigger, not always better. I mean, this paper would say bigger is not always better. I'm a Mac 3. Interesting. Paper number two, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation versus conventional rewarming for severe hypothermia in an urban emergency department. You're not dead until you're warm and dead. So what's the best way to get toasty? This paper compared conventional warming techniques to VA ECMO to see which is better. There were 44 hypothermic patients from an urban ED in Minnesota. Of the patients not in cardiac arrest, hospital survivor with either method was similar. But in the patients in cardiac arrest, ECMO was far superior. Hospital survival with VA ECMO was about 70% compared to 30% without and they warm faster. This makes sense since with ECMO, you're not only getting core rewarming, but you're also getting blood oxygenation and mechanical circulatory support. It's no wonder that guidelines recommend ECMO for hypothermic cardiac arrest when available. Yeah, ideally, this is something we'd have available for all of our hypothermic cardiac arrests. In a lot of parts of the country, this is not practical quite yet, but maybe we're going to be moving there. Yeah. Paper number three. Higher sensitivity with the lever sign test for diagnosis of anterior cruciate ligament rupture in the emergency department. I first heard of the lever or lever test when we covered a pilot study about its use for assisting in the diagnosis of ACL injuries in the emergency department back in the March 2020 EMA. Do you remember March 2020? You might remember March 2020. I'm guessing you don't remember this paper from March 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Right. For the sake of brevity, I am not going to review the technique here. So listen to the full segment or go back to March 2020 or honestly, Google a YouTube video. But anyway, this is a single center prospective study looking at adult patients in the ED who came in within eight days of their injury, who had a negative x-ray, a clinical suspicion of an ACL injury, and at least one positive exam finding. So either the lever, Lachman, or anterior drawer tests. All of the patients got the lever test and some got a Lachman's or an anterior drawer, depending on the ability of the patient to tolerate the test and their swelling and whatnot. Then they went on to have an MRI within three weeks. Over three quarters of the enrolled patients were found to have an ACL injury, and the lever sign was by far the best test, with a sensitivity of 92.5%. Lachman was only 54, anterior drawer only 56. It's a small study, with the possibility of selection bias as patients had to have a positive exam maneuver to be enrolled. But like our last discussion a few years ago, it seems like a really great and really simple test. It's easy, and it's probably worth adding to your physical exam because it seems like it's very sensitive. You know what? I agree. I actually did Google it, and it's super simple to perform. And I will say, I think the anterior and posterior drawer test is a little bit useless. 
you know? Oh, they are (laughs) difficult tests. Whether you are doing them right or you actually know what you're feeling for, it's hard to say. Honestly, I think the hardest thing about the lever test is finding a stretcher to put the patient in so they're lying flat for you to do the test. Fair enough. That's the hardest thing. But otherwise, this seems like a great test. I'm going to start doing it. Totally. Now, I said that in March 2020, but I mean it now. Like, I really mean it now. (laughs) Now I'm going to do it. It You know, they always say it takes a couple of years to, like, catch on. (laughs) There you go. You know, here we go. All right. Paper number four. Cosmetic outcomes of simple pediatric facial lacerations repaired with skin adhesive compared with skin adhesive with underlying adhesive strips, a randomized control trial. When dealing with facial lax in kids, the least invasive method for repair, the better. So if you can use glue, do it. But what about adding in some Steri-Strips? Does it help? Does it hurt? The authors in this study found that cosmetic outcomes were the same, and there was no difference in wound dehiscence or infection. So if the wound is gaping and you find it hard to approximate without an adhesive strip, go for it. But in general, it does not appear necessary. All right, good to know. Paper number five, a randomized study of intravenous hydromorphone versus intravenous acetaminophen for older adult patients with acute severe pain. This is a double-blind randomized study comparing 1,000 milligrams of IV acetaminophen to 0.5 milligrams of IV hydromorphone in patients age 65 or older come into the ED with their acute severe pain. The primary outcome of interest was improvement in their pain score at 60 minutes, and secondary outcomes were the need for any rescue meds and side effects. They looked at around 160 patients, and they used a numerical pain rating scale, and they found an improvement of 3.6 for acetaminophen and 4.6 for hydromorphone. This was, in this study, not statistically or clinically significant. Rescue meds were needed more in the acetaminophen group, And kind of not surprisingly, side effects were seen more in the hydromorphone group. This study would suggest that the two meds, from a pain control standpoint at least, are equivalent. But unfortunately, there were a lot of excluded patients and subjective enrollment criteria, which really limit this study's generalizability. We all are reluctant to give too many opioids, you know, really for any patient anymore, but particularly in the elderly population. But this study isn't really going to allow us to throw them out completely just yet. Okay, paper number six, imaging characteristics and CT sensitivity for pyogenic spinal infections. Jenny, this is kind of my soapbox, but a whole spine contrast-enhanced MRI is absolutely necessary when evaluating for an epidural abscess. A CT scan simply will not do. But just how bad is it? Of the 88 patients in this study, over two-thirds had a spinal epidural abscess, and about 80% of those were associated with other spinal infections, like vertebral osteo or discitis. The overall sensitivity of CT to detect the epidural abscess was only 18%. What? What? Yeah, so absolutely horrific. And again, this is why. MRI is the test of choice. MRI is the test of choice. MRI is the test of choice right? Yeah. So you can listen to the MRAP segment on spinal epidural abscess from July for an overview, but here are a few things to remember. Our clinical gestalt for detecting the level of the lesion is poor. There's often more than one lesion present, and it can include multiple distinct levels, including in 17% of the patients in the study. So when you do imaging, make sure you do the whole spine. And most of all, do not rely on a CT scan to reassure you. If you even think of a spinal lesion, get the MRI. 
I love a paper that supports your soapbox, Jess. I know. Me too. I love that. (laughs) Love it. I was like, she's going to get on the soapbox and then she's going to have to tell me that this paper is going to knock her off of it. But no, this paper doubled your soapbox. Quadrupled. (laughs) Paper number seven. Characteristics of pediatric nasal foreign body cases required multiple removal procedure, a single tertiary medical center cross-sectional study. This is a retrospective chart review from a PZD in Japan that included all patients less than 16 years old with a confirmed nasal foreign body seen over a two-year period. They looked at demographic information, details about the foreign body and the history, and the removal techniques used in the ED, and then they divided the patients into two groups based on whether or not they had a successful foreign body removal after only a single attempt. The goal here was to kind of see if there was any rhyme or reason to why that first attempt was a failure you know, did any patterns emerge? They found that removal was successful on the first attempt in 72% of patients. The parents' kiss, a method we really all kind of want to work, was unfortunately kind of a failure. Mm. They found a statistically significant difference in failure of the first method when that was the first method that was used. Now, that said, the overall success rate of parents' kiss was much lower than described in previous studies, and the authors suggest that this might be due to local cultural differences in interactions between parents and kids, which is kind of interesting. I mean, this was done in Japan, so I don't know, maybe Japanese children don't slobber all up over their parents' faces (laughs) like American (laughs) kids do. I don't know. I mean, I have a 15-month-old And our faces are all just up on each other all the time. So this maybe this would be more successful for us. I'm not sure. But there's a lot of data in the paper, and it's kind of hard to interpret what any of it would mean at the bedside. And they really don't give details at all about the chart review methodology, which is too bad. But Sanjay points out two really good take-home points. First, there are a lot of nasal foreign body techniques out there that are likely worth reviewing, and you can check out the Corpendium chapter on nasal foreign bodies to get familiar with some of these. And two, the overall success rate was actually ultimately really very high in the ED. So next time you see one of these, check out the Corpendium on your phone and then review the techniques and have at it. You know, it's so funny. Why do kids stick things up their nose? <laughs> I don't know. And I, I have to, it's, okay, now I'm going to fully disclose here. I remember being like, I had to have been like three or four years old at the time. I remember sticking a piece of gum up my nose. Like, I, like, I, why? I don't know. I remember it though. I remember it quite well, but I got it out. I didn't, I didn't like <laughs> put it up to the point of no return, but I remember. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Kids are weird, man. Kids are weird. And you know what? (laughs) They grow up to weird adults. So there you go. (laughs) All right. Paper number eight. Blood pressure targets in comatose survivors of cardiac arrest. This was a double-blind, randomized trial of higher versus lower blood pressure targets in comatose survivors of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. They compared a map of 63 to 77 and found there was no difference in the composite outcome which included death and severe disability or coma. Mike talks a lot about the clever way in which they blinded the physician to the blood pressure, which involved the monitor portraying proportionate alternate values, so the physician thought they were targeting 70, but it was actually more like 63 or 77. Overall, this is a negative study with intriguing methods. 
For a little more on this topic, listen to the November MRAP snack. Paper number nine, oxygen targets in comatose survivors of cardiac arrest. I think this is just the other half of that study. It is, So this is (laughs) because, and I say that because, This is the blood pressure and oxygen targets in post-resuscitation care, or BOX trial. Jess had the first half. I have the second half. And they compared in this one a restrictive versus liberal oxygen target for comatose patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So it was an open-label, randomized trial with a two-by-two factorial design, kind of all the same things that Jess was talking about. Patients in this one were randomized to receive a partial pressure of oxygen of 9 to 10 kilopascals, or 68 to 75 millimeters of mercury, in the restrictive target group, or 13 to 14 kilopascals, or 98 to 105 millimeters of mercury in the liberal target group. Primary outcome, ultimately, was similar across both groups. Overall, it's a well-done trial. Like Jess said, in this segment, Sanjay goes into more detail about some of the limitations, but the biggest one in my mind is that the O2 level in some of the patients in the restrictive group was higher than in the target that they were going for, which would bias the study toward the null, which is really what we saw in the end, right? There was no real difference. Overall, really well done trial, kind of one that made a big splash, so you should probably know about it, but ultimately it showed that there was no difference between the two oxygen targets. Paper number 10, is there benefit to concurrent x-ray imaging of the wrist, forearm, and elbow in pediatric patients following a fall on the outstretched hand? Do we need to x-ray the joint above and the joint below in a foosh? 1,100 patients were evaluated for enrollment, of which 475 were found to have a fracture and were included in the study. Of those, only 5% were found to have an abnormality outside of the area of interest one-third of which could have been identified on exam. 5% sounds a bit high, but when comparing it to all the kids that had the full x-ray series, unexpected injuries were more like 2%. So, do all children need the full gamut of x-rays? Probably not. But if you have a super young one or a nonverbal patient and can't get a reasonable exam, no one should fault you for doing it. Yeah, I agree. The little kids, the ones you can't examine, it's probably best just to do the screening. Paper number 11, Diagnostic Test Accuracy of Dipstick Urinalysis for Diagnosing Urinary Tract Infection in Febrile Infants Attending the Emergency Department. This was a quick take. It's a study looking at, like it says, the diagnostic accuracy of a dipstick in febrile infants less than 90 days old. And the results, I think, are not really that surprising. They looked retrospectively at 275 young infants with a fever, a dipstick, a urine culture, and a UA with pyuria. The authors found that the presence of leukocytes had moderate sensitivity when evaluating for UTI, a sensitivity was 0.84, but the presence of nitrates was highly specific, a specificity of 0.91. A combination of nitrates and leukes was probably, as you would expect, even more specific. What does this mean clinically? Well, probably if you have both leukes and nitrates, or maybe even just nitrates on the dipstick, that may be enough to rule in your UTI. But if not, you may still want to send either a formal UA for more info or keep your fever differential open or both. Paper number 12, Prevalence and Management of Invasive Bacterial Infections in Febrile Infants Ages 2 to 6 Months. 
This is a retrospective chart review of over 21,000 infants presenting with a fever across five emergency departments. They found 101 infants, or 0.5%, to have invasive bacterial infection, which they defined as bacteremia or bacterial meningitis. When conducting a nested case control study, this rate dropped down to 0.3% for previously healthy, not pretreated, well-appearing infants. One interesting element of the study was the variability across the sites in terms of workup. Blood cultures ranged from 15% in one ED to over 50% in another, and one ED performed lumbar punctures in less than 2%, while another tapped 13% of the babies. The take-home is that rates of bacteremia and bacterial meningitis is extraordinarily low in today's vaccinated population, and as such, routine blood cultures and LPs are not needed. Well, that's good news because I don't like doing them. (laughs) (laughs) Yay, supporting our practice. I'm just kidding. Paper number 13, percentage of heavy drinking days following psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy versus placebo in the treatment of adult patients with alcohol use disorder. This is a double-blind randomized trial of adult patients with alcohol use disorder, randomizing them to receive either psilocybin or diphenhydramine during two eight-hour sessions. Study meds were given at weeks four and weeks eight in the study period, and participants were encouraged to lie on a couch with eye shades and headphones and listen to this standardized playlist of music while they got this medication. In addition, they were all offered a total of 12 psychotherapy sessions, four before the first meds, four between the first and second meds, and then four after the second med session, and most of them did that. Prior to the study period, the participants endorsed heavy alcohol use about 50% of the days of their weeks and consumed on average seven drinks on any given drinking day. In the 32-week follow-up period, the percentage of heavy drinking days was down to 10% for the psilocybin group and 24% for the diphenhydramine group. This is an interesting and pretty well-done study with the major limitation being in the success of the blinding, as most of the participants and assessors were able to identify which group they belonged to. But it's an interesting concept and kind of good for us to know about in the ED, as both a treatment we may end up being able to refer our patients to in the future, or as our patients might be coming in as patients who are being treated medically with psychedelics for this or maybe other indications in the future. Yeah, that's really interesting. Paper number 14, Yield of Head-Computed Tomography Examinations for Common Psychiatric Presentations and Implications for Medical Clearance from a Six-Year Analysis of Acute Hospital Visits. You ask any emergency clinician how useful they think a routine head CT in a psych patient is, and you will universally get the same answer. Not helpful. So, let's see if we're justified in our indignation. The head CTs reviewed in this study were performed on patients with suicidal or homicidal ideation, hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, catatonia, and psychosis. Patients with concurrent non-psychiatric indications were excluded. And the yield was, wait for it, 0.00%. That's right. We win. Totally and completely (laughs) useless. Right. So all the nopes to Nopeville, not going to do it. We are totally justified. 
Man, this is like a winner of a an EMA, just know, right? supporting what we want to do right and left here. You know, I got to say, what, what I used to, I haven't done this in a while, but I used to have a folder called BAM, and I would put papers like this because that anytime I got asked <laughs> these things, I'd be like, BAM, BAM, there you go. <laughs> so put this in your BAM folder. Paper number 15, amoxicillin versus other antibiotic agents for the treatment of acute otitis media in children. This is a retrospective cohort study using data from a national claims database to compare antibiotic treatment failure and recurrent rates between amoxicillin and broad-spectrum antibiotic agents for kids with uncomplicated AOM ages 6 months to 12 years. They looked at data on over a million kids, and just over half were given amox, around 15% were given amox clavulanic acid, 20% got septonir, and 9% got azithromycin. The primary outcomes were treatment failure and recurrence, and these were seen in 5.5% of kids, and it was pretty much this low across all the different antibiotic groups. Now, this low rate could really just be due to pretty loose inclusion criteria, which means they could have had kids in the study that didn't even have acute otitis. I'm not sure this paper does much to change my clinical practice. I'm actually really a big fan of that kind of wait and see RX in the pocket kind of protocol, you know, where you tell the parents, your kid's probably going to get better in a couple of days, but if they don't, if they're getting worse, if they now spike a fever, whatever it is, they can have that amox prescription ready to go. Yeah, it's a great idea. Paper 16, feasibility of emergency department-based fentanyl test strip distribution. Fentanyl is a huge problem. Many illicit substances are laced with it, and an overwhelming number of overdose deaths involve it. This paper looked at the harm reduction strategy of distributing fentanyl test strips to patients who presented with an opioid-related visit to the ED. Only 23 patients were offered them. 18 said, okay. Two left them in the ED, and only three were able to be reached in follow-up. It's kind of abysmal. But that being said, the three that did use them reported that the strips were positive for their heroin, alprazolam, and cocaine, and it did change what they did. Based on these small numbers, I wouldn't make any major practice changes, but maybe there's some promise here. You know, I I think this is something we're going to start seeing, and I say that because it's actually something my department has started doing, um, Mm. which makes me think maybe there's some people in my department studying this. But, you know, anything we can do in the harm reduction realm, you know, as long as it's cost effective, all that blah, 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 relatively simple, I'm in favor of. Right. And one thing that was interesting uh, that was pointed out here is that it does vary by state because in some places, this is considered drug paraphernalia and you could actually be arrested for having them. So just, you know, just make sure. Interesting. Just to check that's laws. good to Yeah. 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 You don't want to get your patient in trouble by giving them something that they're going to get arrested for having in their <laughs> exactly, pocket. Exactly, right. Ugh. Good Lord. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Thank you. Paper number 17, polypill strategy in secondary cardiovascular prevention. This is a large multinational trial looking at the use of a combo pill that included aspirin, ramipril, and atorvastatin in elderly patients with a recent MI and they compared it to just usual care. They found that self-reported med compliance improved as well as a decrease in a composite of cardiovascular outcomes that included cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, or ischemic stroke, or urgent revascularization. Combo pills that improve adherence are an interesting idea and likely something we're going to see more and more of as more and more patients are on multiple medications. 
I love the idea that it may improve outcomes, but with things like patents and brand names and all of that, we're going to have to kind of see how cost-effective these turn out in both the short and the long term. Okay. Paper 18, Efficacy and Safety of an Extravascular Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator. This study evaluated a new Medtronic extravascular ICD that does not require leads to be placed inside the heart or veins. It uses a single lead placed substernally to deliver shocks and pacing signals. It's the same size as a conventional ICD and can be placed inferior to the axilla, which cosmetically may be nice. After placement and intentionally inducing VF for testing, 98.7% of patients were successfully cardioverted. Not too bad. Keep an eye out because we will be seeing this pop up in our ED. Can you imagine agreeing to a study where they're going to intentionally induce VF in you? Well, they do that every time they place one. So, oh, okay, okay. See, so you, you know more about the placement than I do. So, okay, so, that makes sense so you're gonna they're gonna do it anyway. But you know what? I agree with you. Like that's a little concerning. Like, do we have to do? <laughs> but that? I guess sure. That's how they test them in anybody, right? Make gotta make sure it works. Okay, all right. That's more. That's more reasonable. Paper number nineteen: Association of the Weekend Warrior and other leisure time physical activity patterns with all-cause and cause-specific mortality, a nationwide cohort study. This is a prospective cohort study using data from the U.S. National Health Interview Survey. They took data from 350,000 adults and classified them according to the level and pattern of their physical activity. First, they classified participants into two groups, those who were physically inactive So they did moderate activity less than 150 minutes a week or physically active, moderate activity for more than 150 minutes a week or more than 75 minutes per week of vigorous activity. And then they took that active group and classified them into weekend warriors, meaning they did one or two sessions of exercise a week, or those who were regularly active, meaning they did three or more physical activity sessions per week. When compared with physically inactive participants, their multivariable adjusted all-cause mortality was 0.92 for the weekend warriors and 0.85 for the regularly active. So both groups were lower. They also found that when they had the same amount of total activity, weekend warriors and the regularly active people had similar all-cause and cause-specific mortality rates. Additionally, there was something of a dose response within the regularly active group as longer durations of sessions, so more than 60 minutes, and higher intensity of physical activity had lower all-cause and cause-specific mortality rates. Now, that was a lot of information, but basically what it says is it seems like whether you spread it out over the week or you concentrate it all into your weekend, there is a mortality benefit to exercise, and it's likely in a dose-dependent manner. Surprise, surprise. So get out there and move your body, even if it's your only one day off of the week because you're a resident. So Jenny, what you're telling me is do something. Basically. Something, something, but specifically moderate activity. So this wasn't looking at like, you know, leisurely walking around the park. This was, you have to do something at least physically active. But if you're doing that, you're doing some good. All right. Paper number 20, Association of Artificial Intelligence-Aided Chest Radiograph Interpretation with Reader Performance and Efficiency. 
Hello, Jenny. <laughs> Love your AI voice every time. AI is coming whether we want it or not. This industry-sponsored paper looked at the Lunit Insight, a commercially available AI algorithm, to evaluate if it can improve reader performance in interpreting chest x-rays. Alone, AI had better overall sensitivity at 82 to 99% compared to radiologists, which was 57 to 89%. The radiologists did do better at specificity, though, at 86 to 99%. The sweet spot may be the combo. Radiologists improve their sensitivity while maintaining their specificity. So if you're hoping to avoid AI coming to a hospital near you, I'm sorry, Jenny. I'm afraid I can't do that. (laughs) Oh, that was perfect. (laughs) Paper 21, Gamification of Graduate Medical Education in an Emergency Medicine Residency Program. Gamification is super common now. Sanjay in the full segment gives this definition. The use of game design elements in non-game contexts or craft of deriving all the fun and addicting elements found in games and applying them to real world or productive activities. Think of basically every app on your phone. Ooh, I love that. Your language learning app, your fitness app, heck, probably even your cycle tracking app includes some element of gamification at this point to get you to use it. This is a single site pre-post study performed at a residency program where they implemented some kind of nebulous gamification into their training program. Unfortunately, they don't really tell us what that means in detail. They report that roughly three-quarters of residents reported an increased motivation, and half said that they had an increase in their challenge of their residency. Some problems that Sanjay points out are mainly that there is a high risk of bias when you're reporting survey data on your own residents. But also, as an educator, I want the details. Just to know that gamification may work is not enough for other programs to take this intervention and incorporate it and add to it and improve on it and make residency training everywhere better. Right. Of course it works. Of course it works. We are rats in a maze in a lab. Of course it works. But it's like, it's basically what you're saying is I can give you this information in like, you know, a monotone, whatever, kind of like Bueller kind of way. Or we can make a really fun game out of it, be interactive, engage. It's like, gee, which one do you want? I know which one I want. (laughs) I'll take the Bueller, please. I'll take the Bueller. All right. Paper 22. How are patient order and shift timing associated with imaging choices in the emergency department? Evidence from Niagara Health administrative data. Does the timing and order of patients seen during an ED shift affect imaging procurement? About 850,000 ED visits to a Canadian healthcare system were examined. Relative to the first patient seen, the 15th patient had a decreased probability of receiving an X-ray, CT, or ultrasound by about 4 to 9%. Relative to the first minute, patients seen three hours in had an increased probability of receiving imaging by about 1 to 3%. While it looks like patient order had more of an effect than timing, it is clear that clinicians make different decisions based on various non-clinical factors during their shift. That's so interesting and uh, probably something that we should be all a little bit more aware of in terms of how we practice over the course of our shift so we can kind of try and neutralize any biases that may come in as we're getting tired or hungry or whatever it is. Right. I mean, ideally, same practice every time, but yeah, there's definitely elements that change that. Mm-hmm. 
And with that, we wrap up December. So please enjoy your holiday celebrations. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, whatever it is you are celebrating. Enjoy it with the ones you love. Take Jenny's advice. Maybe make December a chill month. Hopefully you're listening to this at the beginning of December and you're not like (laughs) at the end and you're like, oh man. (laughs) And we will see you next year. See you next year. It's it's time to talk a little natty. Talk a little natty with Ken Milne. This is the December time to talk a little nerdy. This is Swami, and I am back as always with my good friend Ken. Ken, happy holidays. Oh, I love this time of year. So happy ho, ho, ho to you. I mean, I like the music. I like the festivals. I like getting together with family and friends. What's not to like around the holidays? It's true. And I'll be honest with you, Ken. I can take the food much more than I care about taking the presents. I just want the food. The food around the holidays, all holidays, all holidays, food is amazing. And I can't wait for all of the feasts that are coming my way. Yeah. And just just getting together, right? Just getting together with each other is so fantastic. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, sharing a meal. Anyways, we're getting too into it. We're, we're here to talk nerdy, not to talk holidays. <laughs> we, are, we are here to talk nerdy. I have a present for you, though. It is December, so I have a present. This was a topic that you threw over and you said, you know, I think we should get into this. And I think you're right. So this episode is, is a little present to you because I think it's a topic that you've really been chomping at the bit about. And when we have read the literature over the years, we do run time and again into articles that we read and we look at and we're like, oh, that's interesting. And then only to see that they get retracted later. We're like, oh, maybe that's why I thought it was interesting. And this topic of retractions, I don't think gets a lot of attention, but I do think it's important for us to get into what happens exactly when articles get retracted, why do they get retracted, and how does that affect the other literature around it? And I think we should start a little basic with how common it is for published articles to get retracted. Well, I'm happy to answer that question. And before I answer that question, I just want to make a sort of general statement that when we're talking nerdy on this episode and on all our past episodes, we're talking about critical appraisal. And critical appraisal or host publication peer review is a fundamental aspect of science, right? You should be publishing as a researcher to put your work out there to be falsified, if you agree with the philosophy of Karl Popper. I mean, what did I get wrong? What was wrong with my methods? What was wrong with my study design? Which statistical analysis was incorrect or not as accurate as it could be? And so post-publication peer review is absolutely essential. Just because it's published doesn't make it true. It also doesn't make it wrong, but we should have this filter of post-publication peer review, and retraction is just part of that. So you asked me how often this happened, how common this happened. I don't think anybody really knows for sure, but it doesn't happen very often. So some estimates say about two out of every 10,000 publications will get retracted. I found another study that was published in the BMJ. And it looked at the Biomed Central journals, so all of those journals, to say how many of those were retracted. And it was a small amount. It was 0.07%. I think that's important for us to know. It's not like we're wasting our time reading all of these articles because they very rarely are retracted. Now, more of them may need to be retracted, but that's the retraction rate that we're working with. Although I will say that over the last couple of years with COVID, I feel like the retraction rate has been higher, that we have seen 
more fraudulent data that's been put out. And then people who really do strong work looking at those articles and saying, you know, something here doesn't smell right. And then finding that, in fact, the data was falsified. I'm assuming that there are other reasons for retractions. It's not just about falsification or fraudulence. Oh, yes. There's other reasons why papers can be retracted. And COVID has certainly exposed several of the problems in the scientific process. And it's almost a bit like a perfect storm, I guess. You know, here you have this once in a hundred years, hopefully longer, global pandemic coming at the time when social media has really matured and caught on with the broader population. And it has seeped into science. And we have things like free open access to medical education. We have Med Twitter, and these papers are getting published around COVID. And immediately, I mean, even if they're on preprints, immediately we've got smart people around the world saying, hmm, how about looking at it this way? Does it still hold up? Does this paper have validity? So I think the social media side of things and the COVID 19 pandemic have really brought into focus this problem with science. And I like to be a positive skeptic. And so I think this can be used as an opportunity to raise the bar and improve how we do science so we can raise the methodology standards. And also, how do we communicate it effectively? And our good friend, Professor Simon Carley from St. Emlyn's, published early on in the pandemic, he was ahead of the curve on this, talking about how we could do better. So I didn't get to answer your question there, though. Fraud? Yeah, it does make up most of the retractions. Other times, retractions are just due to honest error. And that 2016 BMJ Open publication that I referred to earlier, and we'll put a link in the show notes, they reported that it was about three quarters of retractions were due to some form of misconduct, including compromised peer review a third of the time, plagiarism about 16% of the time, and data falsification or fabrication 7% of the time. But honest errors, I mean, people make mistakes. I make mistakes. Now, Swami, you probably don't. (laughs) I think it's important for people to obviously say, oh, we made a mistake. And it's good to know that it seems that the majority of them are some honest errors, but there's a significant portion that clearly are the other things, plagiarism and falsification and fabrication, which is much more malicious and really much more troublesome when we look at the scientific process and and what the data means when we see it. But again, I think we should be reassured by knowing that most articles are not retracted, the vast, vast, vast majority. Sometimes the retraction occurs quickly, and we have seen that during COVID, relatively rapid retraction. But sometimes it's years before the retraction occurs. Yeah, knowledge translation is something we've been talking about often in science communication. And I keep saying it can take more than 10 years for high quality, clinically relevant information to reach the patient. And contributing to this delay in patients getting the best care, based on the best and truest evidence, is this issue of retraction. And the median number of days from publication to retraction was quantified in that one study, and it was close to a year, 337 days. And that does make it difficult because once you read the article, it becomes part of what you know. It's hard to backtrack. And of course, in order to backtrack, you actually have to know that the article was in fact retracted, and that can be tough. In addition to that, during that intervening time, while the article is out there but not retracted, 
it does get integrated into the rest of the literature. It gets integrated into systematic reviews and meta-analyses and even guidelines. And that brings us to the article that you sent me that kind of set us down this pathway. Retracted randomized control trials were cited and not corrected in systematic reviews and clinical practice guidelines by Katawaka and colleagues, published in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology. Now, first off, I want to give congratulations to the authors for the Rick Bucata School of Title Writing Award for telling us exactly what's in the article right up front. But Ken, just can you give us a brief overview of what they found and what they did in this article? Sure. So what they did was they searched Retraction Watch database to identify retracted randomized control trials. And for those of you who are not familiar with Retraction Watch, why aren't you? But it is a fantastic website and resource. It was started by a couple of guys over a decade ago, and their motivation was explained in their very first blog post back in 2010. Now, the article that I sent you took this list of randomized control trials generated from Searching Retraction Watch database, and then they searched for these randomized control trials on the web of science to determine if any systematic reviews or clinical practice guidelines had cited the identified retracted randomized control trials. And what did they find? Well, they found almost 600 articles in their search, and the vast majority, 525 of them, were systematic reviews, and the minority, 62 of them, were clinical practice guidelines, and they cited retracted randomized control trials. One of the things that's tricky in this is that you write one of these clinical practice guidelines or a systematic review, you get it published, and then after publication, one of the articles that you included gets retracted. Is that what this study found, that this was after publishing the systematic review or a clinical practice guideline that the articles were retracted? Well, they found that 43% of these systematic reviews and clinical practice guidelines were published after the randomized control trials were retracted. Mm. So in other words, the randomized control trial was published, it got retracted, but the systematic reviews and clinical practice guidelines still cited these articles. And of those articles that were still cited, 22%, or if you want to look at it another way, 50% that did this did so without cautioning the reader that the randomized control trial had been retracted. So you wouldn't know by reading the systematic review and clinical practice guidelines. So I'll go through that again, just so it's clear. About 40% had retracted articles contained in them, contained in them. And of those that had them contained in them, that was 22% of the total, only half of those did so with letting the reader know that it had been retracted. And on top of that, none of these systematic reviews or clinical practice guidelines were later corrected post-publication to say, hey, yeah, we published it. Now we recognize that we included some retracted articles and we didn't say anything about it. So they didn't, they didn't even actually go back and correct that error. It's really amazing to see that high a number, 43% of these occurrences. The article was retracted before the systematic review was published. That really is an issue because you can see how, well, I published the systematic review, then the trial was retracted, and so I missed it. I, I, I get that, but this is a little bit more of a problem, and it really speaks to the fact that we're not doing the due diligence of continuing to look at that literature, see if something gets retracted, if this comes up, and then really publishing that little bit of a caveat so people understand that, hey, actually, this was retracted, and that may affect 
the data that we're putting out here, it's really a problem, and it's really a problem when it's not flagged for the reader. Yeah, I had two responses to it. One, I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. I can't believe the number's so high. It's so sad. It's, you know, all these sort of negative sort of reactions to it. And then I reflected and went, you know what? I wasn't that surprised because I see people citing articles all the time and the Princess Bride comes up. I do not think of that article means what you think <laughs> it means. Like they put a reference in there and you go and pull the reference and Has nothing that's to not do what with it. it said. You know, I do that on when I've done, you know, peer review myself or when I'm writing an article and I'm, you know, looking at other articles and I say, oh, that's interesting. They referred to that article by Dr. Jones or Dr. Smith or whatever the name is. It doesn't matter. I shouldn't use those kind of names. But, you know, you go back and you actually pull the article and you go, ah, that's not right. <laughs> so I can't use it. And then you get down a rabbit hole. So, you know, at the end, I was like, actually, I'm not that surprised that these references weren't looked at closely to find out even if they had retracted the articles before they put it into the systematic review or clinical practice guidelines. Ken, what about the flip side? What about the situation where the systematic review or the clinical practice guideline was published and then the RCT was retracted afterwards? Do we have data on that and, and how the authors address that? <laughs> this is even a bigger number. It's not like 42 or 43%. This was like 95% of the systematic reviews and clinical practice guidelines did not address the problem after the randomized control trials were retracted. That means you're talking about one in 20 or only 5% were corrected or retracted their publication. So I'm not talking about the original publication. I'm saying you put out your systematic review and meta-analysis or your clinical practice guidelines, and then what you included in your review was retracted. Some original article was retracted. 95% of the time that never gets recognized. That is really an incredible number. And, and I think this is an obvious question, Ken, but I think it is important for us to just lay it out. Why is it important to address the fact that some of the data has been retracted? Because we're on team patient. Because we want our patients to get the best care based on the best evidence. And we've talked for years now about how much bias is already baked into medical research. And remember, when I'm using the term bias, it's for something that systematically moves us away from the quote-unquote truth, and the truth being that best point estimate of an observed effect size with a confidence interval around that point estimate. And including retracted articles into systematic reviews, into clinical practice guidelines, doesn't get us any closer to that goal of finding the truth. And it should decrease our confidence in both the magnitude of the effect size and maybe even the direction of the effect size. So part of the problem that we're seeing here with systematic reviews where there's retracted data that's not actually changing what's published is that garbage in, garbage out scenario. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about GIGO here. We put systematic reviews and we put clinical practice guidelines up near the tippity-tippity top of that evidence-based medicine hierarchy of evidence. However, these types of publications, they're only as good as the included studies. And if the studies are high quality, great. You can have a lot of confidence in them. But if the studies are low quality, you should have less confidence in the recommendations and be more skeptical of the findings. And the grade criteria were set up to provide some objectivity to this formally assessing the quality of data that are in clinical practice guidelines and systematic reviews but they can't pick up on these retractions and fraudulent papers. There were at least some cases where the authors recognized that the data had been retracted 
and then addressed it. And, and I think that's important. And, and kudos to those authors, that 5% who actually did the right thing. How should this be done? Well, I, I think it should be done at the very least, the very minimum, the bare minimum is that retracted randomized control trials should just automatically be identified. An addendum added to that systematic review or clinical practice guideline cautioning the reader. So it's a flag and it happens electronically once something has been identified and retracted and found to be included in one of these summary articles. Ken, you and I have both published systematic reviews and, and I'm going to be honest with you. Once that publication gets accepted and it's published, I'm not routinely checking the articles that I cited to see if they've been retracted. Should we as authors be expected to do that? <laughs> well, as one of these authors and having lots on our plates, I don't think it should be on us to be able to do this. Once it's off my to-do list, you know I've got a long to-do list. I'm sure you've got a long to-do list. I'm not going back every month or every quarter or every year going, hmm, I wonder if that systematic review I published on stroke back in 2011 has any retracted papers in it. You know, like I, I think it's a lot. But I hear you about the attitude after you publish something. Uh, you're typically working on a new project. You're moving forward. You're struggling trying to get the study conducted or the data analyzed or writing it up and then putting it through the peer review process. You're focusing on other things. So I think it's a really good question that you have is whether the author should be responsible for their publication as a living document. I think my answer would be no for identifying it, but I've got a little bit extra I want to add in there. Yeah, well, we, you go ahead. We chatted in May about how publishers are making large profits to a great degree off of the back of those who are doing the research and the writing. So if we're not expecting the authors to identify those articles, should we instead expect the publishers to identify and to do a little bit more quality assurance? And I know it's a loaded question, Ken, kind of set this one up, but that I think is an important thing for us to discuss. Yeah, I'm swinging for the fences on this one. Thanks for putting the big fat pitch across the plate. Yeah, I think it should be the publisher's responsibility. They're getting so much sweat equity and um, content is coming from the researchers who are giving all their time and effort to do this. And then the publishers are making this phenomenal amount of money. I think the publisher should have a responsibility. And also, it's a very good use of computers, right? Computers are really good at identifying needles in a haystack in this large data, right? And we've got tons and tons of publications that are happening on a daily basis. So currently, the guidelines from the Committee on Publication Ethics, or COPE, and the ICMJE only recommend that journals flag the retracted paper and to have it appear on their online searches for the original retracted publication. They don't recommend flagging all the systematic reviews and clinical practice guidelines that cite these retracted articles. So this would be an excellent use of computers and their ability and their power to automatically search the retraction watch database and to regularly identify the retractions and then search their own published systematic reviews and clinical practice guidelines. So if you're a publisher, you get this um, feed from retraction watch, you find the retracted articles, and then you have a process internally at your publication house to look at your own backyard and say, have we published anything that cite this in systematic reviews and clinical practice guidelines? And if they are, the authors of the systematic review and clinical practice guidelines, they should be contacted. And this is where I think the authors get involved. They should be contacted and then give an opportunity to respond because it may or may not change the overall message or the specific recommendation contained within these documents. 
And then as a final thing, the publishers could put out something on a yearly basis once they've given the authors time to respond because authors are busy and it may not get back to you quickly, but they can list all the things that have been retracted and how they appeared in their systematic reviews or clinical practice guidelines and any specific responses from the authors on how that would have impacted their document. And so having something like that on a yearly basis within their publication, I think that would be really good. And I think one of the things that's really implicit in there or or should be implicit in there is that just because there's a retraction, it doesn't mean that the systematic review or the clinical practice guideline has been invalidated. Exactly. The evidence-based medicine answer is, it all depends. There are ways to determine statistically with sensitivity analyses in data that has been meta-analyzed to see what the impact would have been. However, this of course would be dichotomizing things into statistical and non-statistical significance based on this rather arbitrary p-value of 0.05. And we've discussed the problems with the p-value many times on Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. Now in narrative reviews and clinical practice guidelines, it could impact the grade level of recommendations. But at the end of the day, Swami, retracted randomized control trials should just be another data point for the reader to critically consider. It's something to reflect upon when determining, how do I apply this evidence? The retraction may not invalidate the summary results, change a recommendation, or impact the application of the information. What a retracted randomized control trial should do is definitely make us more skeptical. And I love that wrap-up and conclusion, Ken. It's actually way better than what I was going to say. And I think at the heart of this is the transparency that the reader needs, that the end user of that article needs to have. The transparency to know, I've read this article, oh look, there's been a retraction of one of the articles that was included there that might change what this means for my patient in front of me. And I think that that level of transparency is really vitally needed because like you said before, all of us are on team patient. We are all here to provide the best care to the patient in front of us, and we can't do that if we're not aware of what data no longer is considered to be relevant to the topic and, and how that affects especially clinical practice guidelines, because we know not just for emergency physicians, but for, for all type of clinicians, that those clinical practice guidelines really do play an enormous role in the way that we function and in the care that we provide to the patients in front of us. I think it is not just what we deserve as clinicians, but more importantly, it's what our patients deserve, that transparency so that we can give them the best care. One of the things that you mentioned in there, Ken, is the COPE, the Committee on Publication Ethics, and how we decide whether an article should be retracted or not. And I want to get into that, but I think we're not going to get into it this month. I think that's what we're going to try and lead off the new year with. 2023, we're going to start with talking about COPE and how we look at an article and say, this should be retracted. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. That's a whole nother 20 to 30 minute conversation on how we can start coping in 2023. But I just want to remind listeners that when we're talking about things like retraction, it's just another form of bias and we can look at it objectively. Similar to conflicts of interest, it's a data point. It's something that needs to be considered. It's another piece of information, but we need that information to make informed choices again so we can deliver great care. What a great way to end for the month and to end for the year. Ken, it's been a wonderful year of talking nerdy with you. 
I can't wait to be back in the new year. And of course, to everybody out there, don't forget to stay nerdy. Happy New Year's. Well, I think that brings an end to the December episode and an end to the year. The year 2022. Que le vaya bien. Yes. Yeah, so uh, a longer taping this month, but there's 22 papers. So there you go. But we'll make up for that with a shorter outro, which I don't know if anybody listens to anyways. Happy Christmas, season's greetings. Happy holidays. All of it. Hope you're somewhere snowy and fun and... Uh, we won't say Happy New Year's because presumably on New Year's you'll be listening to the January episode. We'll, we'll wish it to them next month. We'll, that's right. That's what I'm saying. Next month we'll wish you Happy New Year's. But, but don't forget. While you're staying in that snowy and one more thing you got to stay. You stay, you stay classy. classy.